Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Girl of Gen Z podcast. I'm your host, Clarissa, and today I have a guest by the name of Victoria Hugh on the show. Victoria is a digital content creator who shares her love of fashion, beauty, food, travel, and decor on her social media platforms, Instagram, YouTube, and her blog. She also shares what it was like working a corporate job before she made the transition to being a content creator full-time. Before we go ahead with the episode, if you could kindly take two minutes to rate this podcast five stars, preferably, and leave a review on the podcast app. That would be much appreciated. And if you're watching this on YouTube, if you could give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, and hit the notification bell, I will forever be grateful. As always, the timestamps of the topics we cover in the episode will be listed in the episode show notes. Without further ado, let's get on into the episode. Hey, Victoria, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Have, thank you for having me on. Of course, of course. How's your day been so far? Uh, it's been productive so far. I actually surprisingly woke up at like 7 o'clock this morning and just like spent like three hours answering emails, so it's been good. How about yourself? Oh my gosh, you have that many emails to go through. Three uh, hours yeah. worth. It wasn't like that many emails to go through. It was just, I think a lot of the clients were also on the, their emails at the same time. So it was a quick like yo-yo back and forth. So it was one of those mornings. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I got up at not quite as early. <laughs> I got up at nine, I want to say, cause I was up late okay. finishing another podcast. Um, and then went on like a little walk just to like get some fresh air before I'm like camped out my room for the next little bit. <laughs> oh man. Well, I hope you got a nice long walk then. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. The weather's like warming up now so it's nice where are you located right now toronto okay okay yeah. so are, you, are you also in canada i'm in mississauga so oh so close, close. enough yeah yeah amazing <laughs> yeah so let's start a little bit about yourself so your upbringing where you grew up um where you went to maybe not where you went to high school but like the general city yeah. and then we'll take off from there Okay, perfect. Um, so I'm actually not a Toronto native. I was born and raised in Ottawa, so like four and a half, five hours, depending on how quick you drive from here. <laughs> I moved here about six years ago now, I, I would say. Yes, yeah, six years ago. And I essentially grew up in like the west end of the city in this like neighborhood called Bell's Corners. Um, a lot of people think it's just full of like old retired people and a kind of gives, is getting closer to that age range now that most of the kids like my age have more or less grown up and like moved out. But I love it. It's been not uh, it's like a phenomenal neighborhood, like really great parks and everything. So like, I love it. Um, went to school, Bell High School. And then afterwards, I went to Ottawa U and got a biology degree there, but then realized that I didn't really want to study that um, full time or pursue any sort of career along that path. I just I don't know. I it seems like growing up, my parents had really instilled in me like you got to do like one of the big three jobs, like lawyer, doctor, or accountant, or businessman, something along the lines of that. And I kind of like fell along with what their dreams were for me. Not to say that they weren't good dreams. I just think that they weren't what my passions kind of drove me to seek. Um, and then in the process of that, I kind of started blogging when I was in middle school. I would say I started my own blog. I don't know if you remember. There was these sites back then, like Pixo and Freewebs, where you could just like host your own website off of their platforms. I think I've heard that the second one you mentioned, but not the first one. Freewebs? Yeah. Yeah, it was like super popular back then. And it was one of those like basic ones where you can like put those glittery GIFs 
like oh, okay. the sparkly letters and stuff like people yeah. were so into that and then I taught myself how to do like html my dad is in um computer tech he does a lot of it work so I was very exposed to the internet at a young age and a lot of technology and then I started using like photoshop to design like my own vectors and graphics and that sort of thing and then I ended up as one of my electives in high school chose like homsci or like comp tech and one of our projects was to build our own website so I was like you know what this is perfect let's just like use this to upgrade my website and then also get like a good mark in the class it was an easy class I'm not gonna complain about that and I just essentially used that blog moving forward as a creative space where no one could control like what I could say what I would write about how it look or just like anything that I said and I think back then if you had a blog it was more considered weird than anything else like my mom I remember her telling me things like why would you put your personal information out there? Like people are going to find out where you live, what you do. They're going to come and break into the house and like steal stuff. I'm like, mom, relax. Literally nobody cares about me. I'm like this to the rest of the world. And it's not like that's your first post, right? Like this is where I live. This is my address. Yeah. I'm like, come find me. Here's my phone number address. Here's the pin. Google Maps didn't exist then. And I think it was still MapQuest or whatever it was called. (laughs) We need to like print out the sheets. I'm like, here's the instructions to get to my house. No, I... Honestly, all I did on that site back then was just like review beauty products. That's literally how I got into this. Like I would review nail polish because I was huge into nail art. I still love it. Don't do it as much as anymore. My nails are like bare right now since we've been at home for the past like three and a half months. <laughs> all salons are closed. Uh, but I essentially started doing that. And then gradually when I got more comfortable putting my face on my blog, um, I started taking photos of just like makeup looks, outfits, and then posting it onto there. And then I guess in high school, that's when Instagram kind of exploded into the world. And I've toyed around with it a little bit, just posting like mirror shots, selfies, that sort of thing. My cute breakfast acai smoothie bowl. Um, I know a big thing back then. At the time that Instagram like first came about, because I'm just curious Um, kind of where it was for everybody. I must have been... I think I was in like at least second year university when I started using it heavily. So I would have been... 19 I think okay okay. but I think I had it like a year before I just never really posted much on there it's just like when I was 19 I started to post like a lot of things like heavily and it started to become like a daily thing as opposed to just here's an app let's just post a picture on it because before that I don't know if you remember, but like Facebook was where like you'd go to parties on the weekend with your friends and everybody just upload all of their camera roll, like literally the 5,000 selfies you took. You didn't (laughs) sift through it. You just posted them all. And then it transitioned over to Instagram. So that's kind of how I got my Instagram going, I guess. And then I finished my degree, realized I didn't want to pursue anything in the realm of that. I had to do like a thesis for my undergraduate degree and I would spend like 16 hours in the lab and I hated it because I'm such a social person and you're by yourself the entire time so I'm like no I'm not doing academia um I had some older friends and cousins who were pursuing med school and I would hear like horror stories of how people would go on to continue another 10 years of school and I was also like nope that's also not in the path for me (laughs) So I just took a chance and applied for an internship role that a friend of mine from Ottawa had actually posted on Facebook that she was offering in Toronto. And I figured, you know what, I have no job. I don't want to go to school or a master's. So I would just go to Toronto, live with my cousins for a few months, see how it it is. Yeah, just see how it is. I figured like I have no responsibilities, nothing to tie me down. Why not? I am, I would say maybe no more than like 22, 23 at the time. So yeah, and then I've actually stayed here since then. (laughs) You've been in Toronto for how many years now? 
almost six years now, I think. Uh, coming this summer will be officially six years. Wow, so time really flies. Yeah. So is the rest of your family still back in Ottawa? Yeah, so my immediate family's all there. My mom's whole side of the family lives there as well. I have a couple cousins who live in Hamilton because they work as doctors there, but otherwise it's essentially just me and my husband here in Ottawa, in Toronto now. Right, right. Do you travel uh, back and forth a lot or just on like major holidays? We used to travel quite frequently up until the past couple of months. We actually just got the chance to finally go back this past weekend um, since they kind of opened up the restrictions there a little bit. And also, I just really wanted my dog. I dropped him off with my parents like back in the end of February because we went on a trip to L.A. before everything got locked down. And then after we came back, we just literally couldn't go anywhere. Right, right. So I was like, you know, we're going to go on a search and rescue mission, get my dog back. So did you guys fly there? No, we usually drive. It's like... I would say on a good day, four hours. If traffic is really bad, it can get to five. But this is the first time we've gone back since January, February. And then before that, we used to go like every three months or so. Or for like, of course, special occasions like Christmas, um, weddings, anniversaries, that sort of thing. But like it's so close when you think about it that it's not that hard to get back and forth. Yeah, it's really not that bad. It's not like you have to cross a major border or anything. And if you, <gasps> oh if one of you have a car, both like it's, e- it's easy that, in that sense. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, what was I gonna ask? Um, were you involved in any extracurriculars growing up? Like when you were in high school, were you in any sports or did you find all of your time was going towards like school? Yeah. Um, okay. So the good thing that my parents were like super focused on extracurriculars for me, like I'm not the biggest sports person, but I did get the chance to explore a lot of sports activities to figure out like what I liked. I think they put me through figure skating for like at least five or six years. I loved it until I got to the point where I realized I had a fear of jumping on ice and I was like, no, we're done. I'm not doing triple axles because I don't want to slice myself open with skate blades. Um, I also did swimming for the longest time. I actually finished all of like the swimming certificates and then became a lifeguard and then like taught some uh, lessons and then did that for about like six years or so while I still lived with my family in Ottawa and went to so school. So part-time? Yeah, part-time there. And then other extracurriculars, I did piano. <laughs> so most of us have learned some sort of instrument as a kid growing up. Um, Do you I still play? No, I don't. So, okay, the one thing that I kind of regret now is that I didn't keep up with it. I think as a kid, I didn't enjoy it just because it was very like, forced on to me and I was like you got to practice every day at least one hour and I hated it so I kind of rebelled and just like pulled away and didn't want to do it as much and then when I got to the point where I was able to just like stop and tell my parents that you know I'm in high school I need to study harder to get to university and that was my excuse to like okay fine we'll let you stop and then I never picked it up after that and looking back now I'm like I wish I still did um so that's one of my few regrets I also did um language school on the weekends and Saturdays what languages would you be taught so when I was younger, like I would say before 12, I did a lot of Cantonese because my dad is Cantonese, my mom's Vietnamese. And then growing up after that, my parents decided to switch me into Mandarin when I was in like middle school, high school, just because for any potential like business opportunities, it'd just be a good opportunity to learn that. Right. Um, so yeah, I can't speak Mandarin fluently just because I've only really done it for like four or five years. I don't think you can pick up a fully lang- like a language completely fluently after that. But my Cantonese is... Pretty succinct, I'd say. I'd be able to, like, carry a conversation if I was to go over to Hong Kong and have to talk to somebody, and just because my family speaks it regularly. But I think, So yeah. do you think you understand more than you can speak? Mandarin or Cantonese? Cantonese. Uh, Cantonese, I can, like, pretty much speak and understand it pretty well. I just wouldn't be able to carry out, like, a full 
essay in Cantonese. I can do like a conversational, casual conversation. Mandarin, I can understand when people speak to me. I just find it a little bit hard for me to piece the words together to, I guess, verbalize a coherent sentence that doesn't gotcha. sound like a kindergartner speaking. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So you mentioned that you took ComTech in high school. I did as well. I just want to know what they taught you in yours. Because I know that we did, as one of the assignments, had to do um, like the building of a website. But they never really yeah. taught us enough to, like, I guess, be successful and have a decent-looking website. So I'm curious uh -oh. how – I mean, you kind of already had a background in it. So I feel like you had a little bit of a cheat code maybe compared to the rest of the kids in the class. Yeah. Um, okay, so, like, I'm going to – I'll try to do it justice, but to be very honest, it was one of those like bird classes where you just signed up and you knew that like, I'm just gonna get an easy grade in this. The teacher was like super relaxed to the point where he's like, as long as you stay in the class for the beginning of the period till the end of the period and you don't leave the physical class, I don't care, do whatever you want. Um, we just had assignments we had to like turn in. I don't remember them guiding us through html or like javascript or anything at all it was kind yeah, of just javascript oh my god that that name haunts me still <laughs> i don't know how to do that and that's like one of my things that i really want to achieve how to learn to properly jscript um but everything i think was like more or less just self-taught he's like here's the internet go search it up if you want to find code easiest thing is just copy and paste and change functions inside of it so you can see what happens and I was like okay well you're not really teaching me so I'm teaching there. myself so that was it essentially for the internet like website building portion of the class and then I remember we had like an AutoCAD portion where you had to learn how to use the program and you like draft up certain drawings and stuff also self-taught it was a lot of those like this is what we're gonna do today watch me do it once and then go figure it out yourself this is the assignment you have to turn in by the end of this week, and then I'll give you your marks. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, wild. I, I don't want to admit it, but my class was very similar to that. Yeah. It, was, it was kind of like a bird course, um, and we did, you know, a little bit of video editing. We did a little bit of InDesign, all oh kind God. of different Lucky. types of media. But, yeah, when it got to the HTML stuff, I was stressed out of my mind because, again, like, it it wasn't something where they'd sit there and teach you step by step. It was no. very, here's the codes, kind of figure it out and see what happens. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm typing. I don't know where to find what I'm supposed to type <laughs> in for this. Yeah, but that's this is gibberish. Like, what are we doing? literally I mean, it was a fun class I would have to say it was but, I agree with that I agree with that if you're a creative it's like oh my god it's it's the golden class like beats for me a bit it beat um science and math <laughs> yeah I would take home tech again over phys ed not phys ed sorry physics any day if I could did you have any other media courses you were in in high school like did you have like a media studies or a editing class no we didn't so my high school that I went to was very like, um, I think it was like, a, is it IB program centric and also like gifted program centric. So I got streamlined to the gifted program and it was very focused on like academia. <laughs> so I didn't really get a chance to take a lot of the media classes. And I think my parents also had a certain sway into which courses I took at the time as well. I don't feel bad or fault them for it. Like I think taking a lot of like the harder classes helped me to develop like a very analytical mindset. So that was great. And I would more or less kind of get my fill of media on my own in my spare time at home I just like research my own things and like figure them out anyways but I do wish I had like InDesign courses or just like video editing courses to take in high school that would have been really cool so I'm super jealous that you got to do that yeah like I feel like they thinking back now they could have even went further in on a lot of the Adobe applications and went in further with the the lessons but again it's a bird course and it's very here you go here's your assignment <laughs> I'll give you your mark at the end of the week um was it a private school or a public school or no it was a public school okay and girls yeah. and guys I'm assuming
Yeah. Okay. okay. Very diverse school. I think we were in like a very multicultural kind of neighborhood. So we had a lot of different ethnicities and backgrounds there. And how many siblings did you have? I only have one. I have one younger brother. He's actually living with me for the month of June right now because oh, cool. he's trying to like switch between places in Toronto as well. So yeah. He needed like a buffer spot. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. And I mean like we're siblings for, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. So let's get on to the influencer talk then, since I feel like that's what a lot of people kind of tune in for, but I just want to give them a little bit of background of who you were first. What made you choose to be an influencer? I guess your blog, you probably started there. So do you want to give us a little bit of background of how it all started and then how it evolved since? Yeah, so I kind of, I would say, like, fell into this as a happy accident. I definitely was not one of the people who said, who, like, saw influencers and decided, like, this would be a cool thing and let's try it. Um, when I first started back then, it was, like, in middle school. I would say I was really young. Like I said before, back then, people thought it was weird to put yourself on the internet. And I was also very self-conscious of my friends finding out that I had my own website or I'd even take pictures of myself. So I never really advertised it. And I really just used that as my creative outlet to just write about what I wanted without any sort of like censorship from anybody. Um, and then Instagram turned into this like fun little sphere where I could just like post my outfits every day. I love fashion, truly. Um, I thought I loved beauty. Beauty's fun for me, but I think I've gravitated more towards skincare now. I don't know if it's more of like an age thing now that I'm like, I'm not. 16 anymore well, no, but skincare I have to, like, has really blown skincare. up yeah no I fully get it skincare my dad actually told me this recently because he was in the business world and he was like Clarissa like more people are buying skincare from Sephora and not as much makeup anymore he's like why is that and I was like because people want to like wear less makeup and have like you know they want to have that glowy skin that people are like oh my god what are you wearing and you're like nothing like this is it's my skin just me. <laughs> yeah anyway continue yeah so like I was always super into fashion and I found that that was like a fun way to show off my outfits as narcissistic as as it sounds now when I'm like looking back what I was doing <laughs> I guess it was like the precursor into what I would eventually turn into my full-time job so I'd post everyday outfits and then I figured after that um I would just start tagging my outfits on my blog like take a picture of it and mention where I would get it from because I would just get like a couple of comments here and there people saying like where's this top from or like where are those pants from on Instagram and back then like high engagement for me would be like a hundred likes and like 10 comments when it was like super new and people hadn't jumped on it yet and then I think because I was already on the app and using it like as an influencer would without knowing that that's what the app would end up transitioning people with like fashion and beauty into um it kind of more or less gave me a head start in that space and then when more and more people started sifting onto Instagram and using it and then the user database went up and they would find me my account would grow along with that um, I would definitely say though that moving to Toronto was kind of like a catalyst for my account and allowed it to grow so quickly. When I first moved here, I didn't have more than like I think five six thousand followers max. Um, and then within the two years of me living in Toronto, it jumped up to like sixty thousand. Yeah, it was nuts. And then a few years after that, it just like started to grow really steadily. Right now, it's on like a decline within the past year, which I've noticed a lot of people have been having issues with as well. But I would say more or less everything kind of fell into place as a happy accident for me moving to Toronto exposed me to be able to like work with brands meet clients um, when I first moved here I actually interned at a content marketing agency so I'd write content for them and they would just like sell the pieces of content off to different websites and then after that I got offered a position in a PR agency who actually wanted more insight I guess into the influencer world because back then it was very kind of just um 
media in the sense of just magazines, television, radio, uh, that sort of thing. And they want to shift to digital. I think this is about like four years ago. Influencer marketing was starting to grow them, but it wasn't as big as it is now. And a lot of agencies were still very traditional. And they want to shift to digital. So it's hard on to give them insight. Um, and then being there at that agency just really expanded my reach with brands as well. And now I know a lot of like, um, like executive roles, like very intimately at those agencies and the companies. Um, and then after that, I actually left the PR agency to work at a, I forget what they're called. One of those, like the websites that where it partners you with brands to be able to make money when you I see what you're saying. Content. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so I worked with them for a little bit and I ended up being like their head of like creator marketing. So I ended up being the liaison with the creators that they have on their roster and how to like onboard more creators onto their site, educate how to use the site, um, and then cool. also give the company feedback as to like what creators want from there. And then I worked there for about like a year and a half. Um, that on that end allowed me to kind of meet like sales reps from different clients and kind of like mesh more into the sales and business world. A little bit less than the PR and um, I guess just like the client and brand reps on that side. And then after that, I think my blog just started taking off and I started having a lot of opportunities where I would end up taking a lot of time off from work. And I felt really bad about that. So then I had to make the tough decision if I wanted to like stay at my job or to do this full time. And I ended up ultimately selecting, I guess, the role of an influencer as a full-time career. Although I feel like I do identify a little bit closer to the title of creator. Um, just because I find that first and foremost, what started it for me was I just liked creating content, like writing blog posts and taking photos um, as opposed to just like wanting to like influence people. So that's kind of more of the title I resonate a little bit closer to. But yeah, it's kind of in a nutshell as to how I got to where I am today. Yeah, I like the word creator much better too. I feel like influencer, everyone just kind of gets lumped together with that yeah. title. Or it's just like, I guess for certain things when you're generally speaking, it's easier, but when you would introduce yourself, if you're at like a networking event, I would also say content creator, just, it sounds better. And it sounds like <laughs> more prestigious, but like, inf like influencer, anyone can influence anyone to do anything, you know what I mean? Yes. But like creating, like using your mind and skills and creativity to do so yeah. is like a whole nother ball game. Yeah. So what was the, how was it a difficult decision between leaving your job and doing this full time? Did you really, really like your job? Cause I find that like a lot of people are like, cannot wait until the day where they can <laughs> kind of balance out to be like, I'm making enough to quit my nine to five. Like see ya, wouldn't want to yeah. be ya. <laughs> um, so to be like very transparent, like financially, I think I hit the point like where I was making enough to quit my job, like a year before I actually quit. And then I was at that point where I was kind of like plain city, like, do I quit? Do I not quit? Like if I quit, is this sustainable? Can I actually live off of this? Or is this like a one-time thing? And like by next year, it's not going to pan out as well. Right. I, so that's good that you thought very like short-term, long-term. Yeah. Cause like, I don't have that much formal experience on my resume outside of my job. So I was just more concerned that if I left this, would I be able to go back to it afterwards? And the position I held, did I hold onto it long enough to justify me being able to actually put it as, I guess, a legitimate formal experience on my resume. Right. So I stuck around a little bit longer. I love the team I was working with. They were phenomenal. I love the role that I had at the time. And they actually gave me a lot of freedom when it come, came to my blog and my content. Like they allowed me to travel when I needed to. I could work kind of like remotely from home on days when I wanted to as well. They were super understandable when I had like short turnaround time periods with sending content back to clients and I couldn't come into the office to do it. So like it was phenomenal. I think it just got to the point where I just started to actually feel really guilty because I would be taking like two weeks off. And like a month later, I'd be taking like another four or five weeks off to go on like another brand trip and because I had a team that was reporting into me I just didn't feel like I was able to 
give them the proper guidance that they deserved, nor was I able to provide the company with what I had originally promised them for what they'd be paying me for. So it just didn't, like, I felt like I wasn't able to fulfill my role. And to be very transparently too, I was making way more doing content creating full time. So I figured if I left that position, I'd be able to give it to somebody else that could do it justice and then get that whole like nine to five back every single day. Um, I figured I'd be able to like ramp up my own business on my own and try to like make even more money to sustain this as like a longer term career path. So it seems like you guys left on good terms then. Yeah, we left on relatively good terms. Um, we still chat every once in a while and I spoke on behalf of them for some discussion panels as well within like the business space. So like we're pretty good still. That's good. It sounds like you're a very valuable employee to them as well. And they're so nice by like letting you be able to do your side hustle, but <laughs> also working for them. But I get it. Like you don't want to be able to take advantage. And over time, there is that guilt thing that I'm sure would start yeah. creeping up on you. And honestly, it's like, it was really hard too, because it was one of those roles where I would look back and think like, am I being stupid? Like giving this up? Like how many jobs out there will allow you to pursue a full-time blog, let you take any time off that you want, do all these things and still keep you on. And I've had like so many horror stories from friends who've applied to other roles where once the employer found out they had a blog, they're like, you need to shut this down completely. You're, you can't write about stuff because you're representing us on your blog, even though like none I've of, heard of those stories related. Too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, that was like my biggest issue too. Like, am I giving up the perfect situation where I can have a like full-time job and work on my blog full-time and looking back, will I regret this? Honestly, now, no, just because I think it's the best decision anybody can make, like investing in yourself. If you just go with your gut and it works out, obviously it doesn't always work out for everybody. Um, but I think it worked out for myself in the long run. And I'm actually very grateful and probably one of like the toughest decisions I've ever had to make in regards to like my career besides moving cities completely with no job. Right, right. Yeah. So how many years were you in the, I guess, corporate nine to five kind of job until you made the decision to like um, take this full time? That specific role about a year and a half, but okay. I would say I spent also another year and a half working in PR and then about another year working at the content marketing agency as well. So in total, like about four years or so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And you're on just your blog and then Instagram or like blog, Instagram, YouTube. Like how did that? So it started off as my blog first. Um, and then Instagram just became kind of like a side component of it primarily just because Instagram is so much easier to produce content for. Like you take a picture, you write a caption. I'm very much like dumbing it down to like the bare basics. I know a lot more goes into it than just that. Um, but the content production is just so much more fast paced and easier to produce. Whereas like if you take a write a blog post to take like all these photos, edit them, stitch them together, compile them in a nice way, write up everything, link everything back. It just took so much time. Um, so Instagram came next. And then afterwards I started exploring with YouTube primarily as like a business venture first, just because when I was working with clients, a lot of them would express interest in video content. So it was more or less just me trying to like force myself to learn video and to teach it to myself. So I could see that would be a possible venue down the road in the future. Um, and since then I've just ended up staying with YouTube. And then just recently I started playing around with TikTok as well as everybody has within the past two months. Um, but I do think that like every single platform serves an extremely different purpose. I agree with that. And I can appreciate the platforms for that purpose. So as much as people say, like, don't spread yourself thin and put yourself on every single platform, I think it's important to like understand which platform, I guess, serves you best and then focus on that. And if you happen to like all of them, then like obviously stay on all of them. But if there's some that you just like don't vibe with and like don't force yourself to do it, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you wanted to get on YouTube because of the business side of things? Yeah. So I wanted to expand just like my personal, I guess, repertoire of skills. I wanted to teach myself how how to edit videos. I wanted to understand how to like better monetize and like improve SEO quality for videos when I uploaded them to YouTube as well. Um, and also honestly, it's just YouTube is a great source of like passive revenue. I love Instagram. It probably brings in about like 85 to 90% of my annual revenue. But the hard thing with that is, is that you're always chasing the brand deals. There's no sort of like AdSense that goes along with it. So you could literally spend 20 hours on like the perfect photo and caption and it just goes to nowhere after like three or four days because it just gets hidden in the algorithm and like the millions of posts that go up every single day. Whereas on YouTube, you could post something, you're probably aware of this. And then like four years later, it just blows up because people search for it and you get all the eyeballs on there and all the AdSense that goes along with that. And I think that's really, really important to have in your back pocket as well as a content creator, not only to be able to provide a client with video content, um, since not a lot of people are able to do that, but to also create yourself a source of passive revenue so that you're not constantly like chasing after the money. If that kind of makes sense. Yeah. 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 So that was like one of my biggest goals. And I also found that on YouTube, it allowed me to use my voice to provide more of like an educational position on certain topics, whereas Instagram wasn't able to do that. Like Instagram is great for showing off like pretty photos, what I bought today, what I ate, where I traveled, but like no one is reading a 1000 word long caption. You get bored. Like the way you're trained to use Instagram is just, just keep like scrolling and scrolling, right? So like your attention span is so short. Whereas I find that if I'm ever looking to learn how to do something, my first immediate reaction myself is to search up on YouTube and to find a video tutorial on that. And I felt this like innate need to like be able to share more when it comes to like fashion or just home things or just like my daily life. And I found that YouTube really helped to serve that, I guess, need of myself. So now my YouTube platform kind of acts as like a style guide. I show people how to like style new and trendy pieces, like different ways to suit their closet. Um, I review like certain designer items so that people can use it as a point of reference before they want to like sink $5,000 into a bag. Absolutely. Uh, um, I started sharing my plants a lot on YouTube and on Instagram and people for some reason are really into that now. So I do this, everybody's like... into plants now. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but it was like <sighs> a switch went off and like, do you follow Whitney Simmons? Uh, I don't follow her, but I've fitness seen some of her stuff yeah, yeah. She's like, uh, like in fitness, but now all of a sudden always talking about her plants. She's like, guys, 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 I got, I know I don't need another one, but I bought another one. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I'm sure you've seen that quote flying around that's like millennials are like investing in plants like their own children because they don't yes. want to have kids or something like that. Yes. I'm like, I feel like that's a very sad truth, but I don't want to admit it. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, so like I share like plant advice on there. I do like a quarterly house plant update video where I share like what new plants I've acquired, how like other plants have grown, that sort of thing. Um, I'm trying to think of like what else my YouTube does. Oh, I do a lot of vlogs on there since I travel quite a bit as well. Like I just kind of document those trips. Honestly, those vlogs though serve more of like a personal purpose so that I can I look back six years from now and be like, wow, I did this. And I went there when I'm sitting at home with like three kids and like no time to travel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's primarily why I went to YouTube. There was like a business side. Then I wanted to really understand the platform for my own business perspective and to like relay back to clients when I was working in PR and um, at the agency as well. But then it kind of transformed into like my own personal enjoyment for the platform. And I ended up just like using it continuously afterwards. How often do you upload to YouTube and how often do you upload to Instagram a week? Like, is this very pre-planned for you? 
Yeah, so I am the type of person like who is very regimented with like what I produce because I can't produce content like on the whim last minute. It drives me nuts and it stresses me out. I just need to know the stuff is ready to go. So Instagram, I post every single day at least once. Um, and then YouTube, I post twice a week. Usually I have like at least one day a week where it just turns into like a whole production day. And I end up shooting like two to three videos for YouTube. And then most of my Instagram content tends to be up until recently travel content and I would just bring outfits with me when I'm going somewhere and just like shoot like a stockpile of like 40 to 50 images when I'm somewhere for like a week and then I would live off of that for a little while um but that's essentially it I would say so how often do you post on your Instagram story versus your actual like feed with posts so stories that's not regimented at all I try to keep my stories as real time as possible um and I found that that was been like a really great way actually to connect with my audience and my followers because they can kind of see like what I'm doing now and like I'm very comfortable going onto my stories without any sort of makeup at all um I'm, my important. pajamas are like workout clothes yeah I just like show them what my real life is because I know my Instagram feed serves a purpose for me at least and it always has been to kind of like showcase my work for clients it I see it as more of like a portfolio and a resume for me um and I know that it's like a lot of the content that I post on there is definitely not attainable it's like not relatable to everyday life but I just truly love taking beautiful photos so that's kind of why I use Instagram whereas my stories are for me to be able to like connect with my audience some days I just like don't post um and I've kind of like set the expectation for them like if I'm not in the mood to post today I'm just like not going to but if I am in the mood you may get like a slew of 70 five stories I do this weekly thing where I do plant updates every Sunday and it just like goes through everything that has changed with my plants throughout the week if there's like new growth if I've been like dealing with any sort of like weird infestations on plants or if acquired new plants or a plant has died I kind of do that and that usually turns into like a super long like if you watch it, it's probably like an hour's worth of like Instagram stories but people like thrive on that and I was not expecting that of all things I thought they'd be interested in seeing like behind the scenes work or like when I go to events but no they want to learn about my plants because so. I feel like it hits like multiple audiences like the millennial yeah. like you said that quote earlier but then also like the moms out there that like yeah. just in general love plants you know what I mean like yeah. planting them in their backyard etc so I think there's like multiple audiences that you can you know divert and bring back to that and I've had like so many people say things like oh I just like like to see your plant collection and then other people just tell me things like I have a black thumb so I just live vicariously through your plant stories I'm like okay well as long as you enjoy them that's all that matters and like it's 100% like not sponsored at all it's just like what I enjoy and I've kind of learned that your audience is a lot smarter than you think they are and they can detect like I would say like if you're genuine or not so if you're posting things that you do actually love and you feel excitement for they kind of like thrive off of that energy as well and because of that now I just like my rule of thumb is just, just post what feels right to you like don't curate it in a certain way especially when it's with your stories just post it as raw as possible if you want to make it look pretty you can um, but when it comes to like your everyday life I feel like it should be as unfiltered and as raw as possible and then I've just found that's the best way to really connect with my audience for sure Going back a little bit to when we were talking about, you know, content creators or influencers being on multiple different social media platforms, I think it's, you don't have to be like, uh, what's it called? Like A plus on all of them. But I think as a creator, it is important to kind of be on all the main social media platforms being Instagram, if that's kind of where you got big, mm -hmm. and then using YouTube as a, you know, different platform as well. I mm -hmm. find that 
because the way I found you was through Instagram. But then after Instagram, I went to your YouTube and I watched your Everlane haul. And I was oh. like, oh, now I know how she sounds like. Now I know like <laughs> how she styles things. Like it's it's so much more personable and it's not just yeah. a page anymore. And I have more of a connection with the both two intertwined. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100% understand. And I think it is very important, like you said too, that people kind of play with the different platforms so they can get to know somebody a little bit better. Like my YouTube definitely has a whole other persona than my Instagram, I would say. And the closest you'd get to it would be like watching my story on Instagram and that kind of pulls a little bit closer to my YouTube channel whereas YouTube like dives more to that personality side of me um but yeah and then I think like even for like my blog that is so curated as well because it's obviously like the most beautiful photos and like your your blog post has been like grammar checked and like reviewed and made sure that everything Thing reads coherently and is like properly formatted so that on its own is also an educational platform I think similar to YouTube but it's just like a highly curated educational platform whereas YouTube is just like I would say a video vomit of people's experiences yeah and advice yeah I'd have to agree with you on that so how let's talk about brand trips a little bit because I mm -hmm. feel like that's something that like you see a lot of as like a viewer or a follower of somebody bigger on the platform but they never really touch on kind of how those go when yeah. you were at your other job but then also balancing this how often were you going on brand trips so I've only been really doing brand trips for the past like maybe two or three years I know they've been happening for like way longer than that so I can't necessarily say exactly how often it would be it just really depends on like what brands are focusing on I'd say back then um like last year you'd go on a brand ship like once every like two months but it would really range on what sort of brand ship it is it can go anywhere from say a brand wants to take you to for example PEC for a weekend just do like a really quick getaway for like three days and that's super low budget on there because they're not flying you anywhere they're just transporting you a lot of the times when it's like local within the city they'll just pack you into like a little bus that they rent and then just bring you to a hotel somewhere cute like the Drake Devonshire then there's also the other like crazier brand trips that are like a week to two weeks long they're gonna like fly you halfway across the world you're staying in like five-star resorts getting like the best of the best experiences um so they're very very different and I think it's like I not every single brand trip I go on is one of those I would say like balling out bougie brand trips but I have had the luxury and the opportunity to go on a couple of them many of them do tend to be like the very simple weekend quick getaway to a cottage together with a brand so they can like show you the messaging for like a new launch or something they're trying to push but I would say if I look back on all of them in total within the past two years I'd say on average every two months up to like maybe three months max I would frequently go on one okay and did you get to bring like a plus one or was this just you <sighs> depended so that's a very contentious topic when it comes to, I would say, influencers and creators for plus ones. A lot of the time um, when you're going on a brand trip, the expectation is that you're producing content for the brand, whether it is written in a contract or not. That's their goal because they're spending like I would say on average upwards of $5,000 plus per person to go on these trips in between like accommodations, transportation, goodie bags, feeding you, that sort of thing. So they want their return on investment and they want to see you either like talk about the product or post while you're on the trip. And the hard thing for us is that a lot of the times many of us have somebody else that shoots for us all the time. We're not just like all setting up our cameras on a for tripod sure. and shooting it. Although we do know a lot of girls and other content creators who do do that and like hands like applaud to them because I cannot do that um but it's hard for the brand to justify bringing that other person because then they also have to pay for like everything for them as well so more often than not 
they usually say no. If it is like a heavy content production trip where they're saying that like sometimes if I go on a seven day trip, they want one Instagram photo per every single day. They want a whole blog post summary running up like everything we've done afterwards. They want Instagram stories like a minimum of like four to seven every single day and like a vlog. Then I definitely require to bring somebody with me because there's no way I can juggle like doing all those things at once. It's just physically impossible. Um, Unless you're doing it all for each other, but then it's like you're all behind because you're trying (laughs) to get each other's photos and videos. 100%. And like that's the hardest part too. Like it sounds very petty when I say this. And like I know right now from somebody who's going to listen to this outside of like the world of influencers and creators will be like, well, that's silly. You can do it anyways. That brand sometimes tells like, well, you guys will have each other to shoot each other's photos. Or like we have a photographer that we've hired to come with us on the trip to shoot this stuff for you. But the issue is that we've all more or less trained one other person in our life to shoot all of our content and they know stylistically exactly what we want like how low to get down on the ground how wide you want your shot to be what angles look perfect for you like what lighting composition you prefer and it's so hard to retrain that from somebody else who is a professional photographer and has their own stylistic preferences or just like another blogger who just doesn't shoot similar type of content to you and a lot of the times it takes like years of practice and like trial and experience in order to get somebody to understand you like to literally live inside your brain. Like, honestly, I tell people if I could have a twin that just lives full time, taking my content for me, I'd be happy. But unfortunately that's not the case. And my husband takes about like 95% of my photos. Um, so it makes it really hard when brands are not able to, they don't allow us to bring a plus one with us on the trip to help produce the content, even though it's super integral to how we maintain the specific aesthetic that we have, which is more or less why the brands reached out to us originally because right. they want to reach and a style of content. So it's one of those very, I guess, like nuanced arguments you have to have, like it's hard to justify, but at the same time it makes sense coming from our side, but you don't want to sound silly saying like, I need to have only this one person shoot for me. Cause then it just sounds like you're having a temper tantrum. But I totally get that. Like my boyfriend, same thing. He knows the angles, he knows <laughs> the level, he knows the aperture, the exposure, like he, and it's just, we know both how to use the camera so well. So it's very easy when it comes to talking about it. I and I know I recently, yeah, <laughs> I was like, Oh no, it's not good. Um, recently I, um, my friend who was at, um, in college for makeup. I forget the program. I'm blanking right now. Cosmetic, whatever the cosmetician stuff. Um, and she's like, Oh, I'm going to do, I need like some models to do makeup on. And then the photographer is going to take some photos and then whatever they have to do something with this assignment. And I remember like, she dolled me up so nice. And then we went to the studio with this professional photographer that like all the students were like talking about being, Oh, he's so expensive. Like, that's why we all have to wait. And like, it's such a long day because we have to wait for him, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wow, you must be like really, really good. So he takes the photos, whatever. I'm in there for 30 seconds done. And then I got the photos because I asked her obviously to send me them because I'm like, okay, like what's all this hype? And they weren't even that good. And I was like, it's because he doesn't know the angles. He doesn't like, okay, anyone can hold like a reflector and have the lights, you know, set perfectly. But if you're going to make it look like I have a double chin and tell me to place (laughs) my hand a certain way, but then like it, it's not, it's not translating that well through the photo. Like there's an issue. So I totally get what you mean. Like, it's not my spot to say anything. It wasn't my project, but like, I would have told this guy to like, (laughs) he needs to rework his system. It's so hard, especially when your full-time job is to literally look at yourself 24 seven. Like you nitpick the, can I, can I swear? Of course. (laughs) Okay. You nitpick the shit out of yourself. Like you're like, I want my hair to look this way. I, I look like I have a lazy eye when I turn that way. My cheekbone is high. I want to angle my face that way to the point where like these people know exactly what you want and you can either shoot like this or it can take a full hour just to get like one perfect shot. Yeah. 
So yeah. Like, does your, does your sorry husband right or fiance? I don't know husband. if you're husband um do, like do, does he ever take a photo and he's like I know you're not gonna like this one I'm just gonna I'm just gonna retake some like are yeah. you guys kind of on that level sometimes he's like he's like no, no no do it again I'm like what do you mean you just took like 10 he's like no, no no I know you're not gonna like it so like just try it again and then there's other times where like I literally look at a photo I'm like what the hell were you thinking like you know I'm not gonna like this like look at the photo does this look attractive <laughs> so, like there's like there's a push and tug when it comes to taking photos like he gets me and then there's obviously off days and we're just not getting each other or like my body just doesn't want to perform and pose in the way I like yeah to see. yeah of course of course you're gonna have your good days your bad days you're like oh that pizza like I just feel bloated <laughs> and like blah from last night like this today's not a good photo day but yeah. then I feel like you also have times where like you may get that unexpected photo that he takes that's really good and you're like wow like I love this photo yeah there's definitely some days where it's like five photos in and like we're done we got it we don't even have to worry about it anymore and there's other days where you're just spending like half an hour to an hour and you're like I hate every single one so right. there's a push and tug but at least like with that person who you train you can you can really push their buttons when it comes to taking photos and like I know with him I can make him take photos for like an hour straight just to get the perfect shot whereas if I'm shooting with a stranger like I don't want to bug them to be like hey like do you mind just like taking one more and like asking them like 10 times over <laughs> like I just I feel bad because I know I'm being a huge b but at the same time it's like I don't fault them because they just don't know what I want right I know it's the worst when you're traveling and you're trying to get someone to take it the, of both of you and you're like I want that perfect Instagram photo and then it's like an old person they're like got it and it's <sighs> blurry and you're like or the worst hard? is when they turn it horizontal and you're like no <laughs> I left it that way for a reason it's not gonna fit on Instagram <laughs> Oh my god, I've had like the horror stories and getting strangers to take my photos for me to the point where like I frame the photo exactly. I'm like, look, like I want my feet here and my body here. And they still take it. I was like, I think it looked better this way. I'm like, no. It's nice that you thought that, but I didn't need your opinion. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I appreciate it. But like, this is my job. This is not just going to a photo album somewhere. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So are you with a, um, what's, do you have like a brand manager or do you answer all emails on your own? So I used to, when I first started like doing, I would guess say like influencing work full time, it was really hard for me to juggle my full time job. And to do that, because you'd have to like constantly, like I said, like yo-yo emails back and forth, review contracts, nitpick contracts. I had like zero legal experience when it comes to reading them. Um, and also just like understanding how to like argue for your worth and to justify working with a brand when they don't want to pay your full rate or even just like saying no like the hardest thing for me was saying no because it always feels so guilty I think that like what if the brand just hates me after I say no they're never gonna work want to work with me like ever again so I had a manager for probably about like four years or so um and then after I quit my full-time job and I started doing this full-time I actually had a lot more time to kind of like review all of my contracts alone so I do you prefer like it that way I do now just because I find that although I love my managers and they were great I think when it comes to a talent management agency a lot of people go into it assuming one thing and they get a completely other thing like I don't think they ex they a lot of people expect your manager to be like at your whim like every minute of the day to respond to all of your emails phone calls texts when they're also probably managing like 20 other talent like on top of you and you literally only take up like maybe 10 percent of their day and i was looking back on like how much i made with them and like how much my i guess my fees were cut from using them as like a management agency and i really looked at them like this is enough to pay a full-time personal assistant i could literally hire wow. someone to dedicate a hundred percent of their time 
to me. And in my head, I'm like, how much more money would I be making? Like how many more brand deals? How much more success could I get from this? Not to say that the only metric is like to make more money and to have more success, but it just, the numbers didn't make sense in my head. And because I had so much more time to myself after I quit to be able to manage all of my own contracts, I wanted to be able to at least, if I'm not spending that money paying my own employee to work for me, then to just at least like save all that money back for myself and to manage my own contracts as well. So at the moment, I don't currently have a manager. Um, I haven't had a manager for the past like six months or so. Okay. Yeah. I never really looked at it in that light with somebody managing multiple people. You're right. You really are just a small portion of their day. And really, like if you really, I feel like want to, want to see the numbers, you want them to be searching as many active hours of the day as you possibly can to be on, on your side. You know what I mean? So, um, I, I totally get that. Do you have like set rates now that you, when you negotiate and like deliverables when it comes to like posts for your Instagram or mentions in YouTube videos? Yeah, so I do have set rates for my Instagram and my blog. I don't really have the largest following on YouTube just quite yet. Like, I'm still working on growing that. So I do have a rate for it, but it's not something that I end up offering brands a lot of the time unless a brand comes to me like, we want to work with you specifically for your YouTube what are your rates? And I give it to them. Um, sometimes I have pitched clients that have come to me asking me for like an Instagram collaboration. And I kind of let them know as like an add on, I think like it'd be really beneficial for you to also work with me on a YouTube video to add more education and background to your specific product beyond just like, if you're just wearing a shirt, I don't need to feature your shirt on a YouTube video. But if you're giving me like a whole skincare routine, that's like specifically targeted at acne or like rosacea, then I think there's a lot more information behind that, that my audience should be aware of besides just looking at an Instagram photo of me like holding up a product or like using it so it's really circumstantial um but I wouldn't necessarily say that my YouTube serves as a source of revenue primarily right now it's I'm more focusing on like growing that account um building a relationship with my audience and just like being able to put out more reliable sources of information on there before I like heavily monetize it okay and what are typically the deliverables like generally that you give a brand is it a story post, a, um, a post on your Instagram feed and like, so I don't know. The most common things that brands usually come to me for um, would be like, basically just like one Instagram post. It honestly just really depends on what sort of budget they're working with. Um, Brands that come to me with like more than just one deliverable, I'm very inclined to give them kind of like a bulk rate just because they're investing a little bit more in me. So I'm happy to do that. Especially if the brand has like worked with me any times before in the past. Um, Sometimes brands do also ask like one post on my feed and then like a couple stories to go along with it to boost it because then you have a swipe up function um, that you can link directly to their site or specific product that they're trying to focus on. And I think the brand's really want that a lot of brands are really stuck on the bottom of the like the sales funnel and they assume that influencers or creators are really going to like sell a product and convert buyers into like dollars whereas that's not really where we fall into the funnel we fall more like the middle area where it's more like brand awareness so a lot of the times I find that my role is also advocating to the brands like I'm not just here to be a salesperson for you like I'm providing background information on the brand and putting the brand in front of consumers and like my audience's eyes it's up to them to make the decision whether or not they want to to make them more aware of what's out there yeah like I'm not that person at the cash like cashing somebody out and like selling the product to them that's a good way to put it so yeah a lot of them try to like focus on the swipe up link option in the stories and I offer with any stories that they want um, just because I know that's what the brands want but I usually drive them more towards feed content a little bit more because then they can also repurpose that imagery 
in my contracts that I sign with the brands, I always give them like licensing rights to the content that I produce for them. Um, up to like at least a year, they can reuse it on their own accounts. They can boost it if they want or use it for like marketing collateral, which I think is also just as important as making the final sale. Cause then like, if you think about how much it costs for you to hire a photographer and like rent out a set and like editing and all that afterwards, you literally have a piece of content that's been done that you can reuse over and over, Ready and over to go, again. Yeah. yeah. If you just boost it. So it's so easy that way. Um, and that is actually, so do they pay I... in bulk? Sorry to cut you off. Do they pay in bulk for that like piece that they can use up to like within that year or do they have to pay you again once they post? Um, so in my rate, I already have like a built-in licensing permission for them okay. to be able to use that. My assumption is that brands want to be able to repost it once I give it to them anyways. Um, and because of that, a lot of the times brands have like a window of exclusivity where I don't post about a competitor brand at the same time. And the licensing rate built into that also kind of protects me that if the brand re wants to reuse my image down the road, um, they're not being able to create a source of revenue out of that without compensating me for it. And then I have to chase them down because I've had brands in the past just like reuse my imagery like over and over and over again. And now it looks like I'm the face of that brand when like I don't endorse you and it's been like five years ago. So. <laughs> That's, <laughs> yeah, it's, some brands are really sketchy. Some brands are great. Like I've even had brands like come back to me and say like, hey, like I realized it's been a year since like we worked together and we still want to use your image. Like, can you send us your most updated like licensing rates? So like some brands are great and then some brands wow. are just like. Just That's gonna... so respectable. Like, <laughs> thank you for asking me. Like the way yeah. it should be. <laughs> Honestly, transparency, I think is the most important thing in our industry because like it's such a, it's a big industry, but it's so tight knit. And like anything that happens, it's going to spread. People are going to share it. So I think it's like transparency just really helps when you're honest with people. Absolutely. So how much time do, like, do you think if you were to ballpark, does it take you to do the pre post, I guess all the production for like an Instagram photo versus a YouTube video. I know you're just kind of like warming up to YouTube, not doing it as actively, but I guess just comparing. Honestly, I think Instagram, depending on how I feel, like if it's, comparing like producing content for a brand versus just producing it for myself if it's just casual and organic on my own it doesn't really take me any longer than I would say on average two three hours per photo in between kind of like storyboarding how I want the photo to look finding the outfit finding the location going out and shooting it bringing it back home editing it and everything sorting out the photos and then figuring out the final one that I want two three hours max if it's like a branded campaign then those usually go upwards of like 10 hours just to it really depends on like being able to shoot as many options as possible. So I don't have brands that come back and be like, Hey, we actually didn't like that. The product looks way too small. Or like your product was turned half quarter clockwise in the wrong direction. I can't see the whole label. At least then I have options. So I have like safety guard measures for that, but that in and of its own takes up more time. Um, YouTube, since I don't really have a lot of branded collabs right now, and I try to treat my YouTube as very organic as possible, I honestly just like plop myself down in front of my computer, sorry, my camera, and just like film the whole video. Most videos don't take longer than like, I would say 30 minutes for me to film. And then I probably say it takes me another like hour, an hour and a half to like cut everything together, edit it, and like another half hour to upload it. So like maybe two to two and a half hours max per YouTube video. Uh, I think my outfit videos take the most time. People don't realize that it takes a lot of effort to create like 20 different outfits for a video and make them look different enough that you don't get criticized by people saying like, well, you literally just switched the pants. Um, so it's so silly when you think about it. It's like stuff like that. And then switching out all the outfits, putting another outfit on, making sure your hair looks Trayons, cute. You have a the worst for that. <laughs> They're the worst. They take the longest amount of time and they like, they take no time to like, 
edit afterwards. But if I'm just like whipping up a face for like a review or something, that takes like no time. Right, right. Do you use yeah. like, um, I forget what it's called. There's cert like a certain app where you can kind of plan your images for Instagram before they're uploaded so you can see if they kind of all go cohesively. Yes. I, I use one of those. I don't know what mine is called. Let me just like, pull it up really quickly right here. I know sure. a lot of people like to use um, Planoly. That's or, the one I was thinking of. Yeah. That's a really popular one, but I think to get all the features out of it, you have to pay for it. I ended up using oh. an app called Preview, which one of my friends introduced me to, and it's like 100% free. It literally does what I need it to do. You can, it sounds so silly when I say this, but like it moves the way I want it to move. Like you can press and hold on one and like just like drag it to a new spot. You can flip images. I'm going to write that it, one down. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's Preview, and the image for it is like nine squares of like different colors of a rainbow or something like that. It's so easy to use, and I think you can upgrade to a business account if you want like if you're managing multiple accounts and just like toggle between them and create grids of like different types of I guess feeds you want to create okay is that one free too uh, until you have to buy the business one yeah so it's free just for like one single account to use on there okay cool so that's typically what you use then on on your general yeah I've been using preview for the past two to two and a half years or so to kind of organize my Instagram feed actually before this I used to create a grid on Photoshop um, on my computer before I discovered this app and it would just be so annoying because I'm not always at home when I need to post and I had to check it so I would create a grid in Photoshop take my phone take a picture of it so I would have it on my phone to refer back to in the future but then the photo would get lost in my photo album and like you know you go take like 20 photos a day or something like yeah. that it'd be so annoying so I'm very glad I actually found this app and I can just like open it up now to use fun fun yeah. so what do you use to um edit do you use Photoshop I guess for photos, then what do you use for video? Um, for Photoshop, I used to use Photoshop quite a bit. And then I actually started using Lightroom about like two years ago, just because I everybody was selling presets. And I'm like, what the heck is a preset? So I much hype. <laughs> yeah. And then like, I want to learn it. And then I realized that you could literally save your stylistic of editing and apply to every single photo. When I'd be like spending hours going onto Photoshop, editing in camera raw, setting all my settings for that specific photo. Then I take a picture of it with my phone and then go back re-editing every single photo and making sure all the numbers match up. So it's the exact same editing style. And then I discovered Lightroom. So now I've grown to love Lightroom. So much time has been saved. It's so much more efficient. You can organize your photos in like separate folders. It doesn't like affect your original photo. You can save like different layers of edits. Amazing. So I use that and then I use Photoshop at the end to kind of like touch up if I want to tweak certain things. If I'm doing more like Photoshopping magic to a photo. Um, for video editing, I just primarily use Premiere Pro. I do all of my work off of like a PC. So that's the program I've been using since I started. Okay. Do you use like a computer computer or do you have like a laptop? I used to have a laptop. It was dying last year. It was about like six years old. And then I realized I was never editing when I was traveling anyway. So there's no purpose in buying a laptop that was strong enough to be able to handle like Premiere Pro, Photoshop, InDesign, and like Lightroom all at the same time. Cause those will crash a computer unless oh, yeah. you're buying like a $3,000 computer, like a uh -huh. laptop. And uh -huh. there's no point getting a $3,000 laptop. So I instead actually this year at Christmas switched over to a desktop and I got like a massive monitor. So like now it's like beautiful for me to edit videos in front of. I spent so much less. Yeah, honestly, I was in the same boat. I used my MacBook Pro for years and years and years. My dad like, took out RAM, put in RAM. This was back before they've now revamped them where you can't really do that as much to the laptops yeah, anymore. Like they kind of just are what they are when you buy them. So we just like 
you know, made it, we made it the best powerhouse we could. And then, you know, it's, it's been, you know, eight or nine years now with it. I'm like, okay, like I need some, I can't be sitting here for 10 hours of rendering yeah. for a podcast. Like I, I, my laptop will not be usable for the day and I just can't afford that time. So, um, I did go to Canada computers and okay. I got them to custom build me a computer. Wow. It was, it was hefty. It was in the three grand like Mark, but I was hoping in hopes that, you know, everything would be like rendered within minutes, which it is now. And I have like yeah. my two monitors, like I have a quiet fan. I'm like, this is literally the life. Like, why did nobody show me this 10 years ago? But I guess it's because when you're in college, it's like you need something that's on the go and it just makes more sense. But because I went to school for television and film, I just was like, this laptop is actually awful for everything I need to do. Like, I need a powerhouse that can like really like the RAM is good. Like I have enough space. It's just it's easy to uh, if I had to go back to Canada computers and then put in a new hard drive that has more space. It's just stuff like that. So um, I totally get you. And the big monitors lifesaver who edits oh on a little laptop screen anymore I can't and like when I travel I don't want to bring like a 15 inch like laptop with me because it's humongous it's so heavy so I bring a small thing but I'm like what the heck am I editing now or is now I have like a nice like 27 inch like huge screen I split it up to different things too so I can like edit one thing and I have like a word doc open at the same time where I know like my storyboard is written down I can like search for things it's phenomenal and like I get what you mean by saying like rendering for 10 hours I would literally schedule to edit my videos at like nighttime like literally before I go to sleep so I can set it to render while I'm asleep and there's been times where I wake up the next morning and I go check on it's like rendering 15 hours ago I'm like what like how is this possible and at that point I was like you know I'm done with this need to invest in something it's going to be just as expensive but this thing better last me twice as long yeah like you you get to that point you get to that point and uh I mean if Macs were cheaper and you could, you know, put things in it to make them better. Great. But they're not. And they're so expensive to begin with. And it's just, I love Macs. I love my Mac products. Like iPhones, all about those. But for for editing, it's not an editor's world. Like, no, I like, I love Macs too. And I just like love the aesthetic of it and how it looks. And like, don't get me wrong. If I could shell out that money, I would. But it's just like efficiency wise, it doesn't make sense for me to be spending that much money when I can get like the exact same thing for like 50% of the price or spend as much as a Mac and like soup it up and make it really easy and efficient for me to continue to upgrade it every single time. I need Absolutely. to like fix the RAM or get like more hard disk space. Exactly, exactly. I felt like yeah. that was a constant issue I was running into too on my laptop. It was like, you're running out of space. I'm like, Dad, we're gonna have to take apart the laptop again. And he's like, what? It's been two months. He's like, yeah, I know. My videos Literally. take up like almost a terabyte on my drive. <laughs> Oh God. Um, so you talked about Lightroom a little bit. Do you use people's presets? Do you have your own presets? What what do you what's your approach on that? I kind of have my own presets just because I have a very certain way of how I like my photos Aesthetic. to yeah, I like my photos to look a certain way with my own aesthetic. I have played around with some other people's presets before. And I think it ultimately, a lot of people think that presets are like the magic button to make every photo look beautiful. But it certainly is like, it's not the case. It's hyper dependent on like the lighting conditions, like the colors that you're wearing, that sort of thing. So like you can buy like, Teza's presets and like she's one of the most popular ones on Instagram right now with her app as well and it's not going to make every single photo of yours look stunning like you could take a silhouetted photo where like you're completely blown out with the sun behind you you're not going to look cute you can take a photo in like pitch black and it's not going to look cute because of her presets I think it's important you have to also understand how to utilize the presets and how to fix like all the specific like lighting, shadows, whites, blacks, that sort of thing, and like fixed tone curves. So once I realized that like presets are not the magic button, I just ended up deciding like, I just want to create my own. Um, and I now, because of that, only shoot in specific lighting 
settings as well. It just helps to make it easier for me in like the long one I'm editing. I'm not spending like 10 hours trying to like jiggle around this like one little like white balance to make sure it works perfectly. Um, so now, now I have like a handful of presets that I use that I have like for circumstantial, like this is my bright direct sun preset. This is my like cloudy day preset. This is my like by the ocean and everything just looks like super reflective preset, that sort of thing. And I found that that really helps me out. And all of them are more or less a variation of each other just with like a couple of adjustments here and there Sweet. to compensate yeah for like the lighting deficiencies right it, that was a conversation my boyfriend and I had a little while back like I would buy a couple of presets and he was he would put it on the photo um because he was way more proficient in Lightroom before I was I was more Photoshop mm -hmm. and then I started you know learning it a little bit but st it's still I still got to get better build that skill set but he was like, you know, we throw this preset on and it, it's literally orange. Like you just look so yes. orange. And then we try to like fix it. And he's like, this is awful. Like <laughs> what kind of preset is this? So yeah. I, I do, it's almost like you have to take it with a grain of salt. Like you put it on, but then you really do got to adjust it. And like you said, you even shoot in certain lighting to help yourself out. And uh, I feel like everyone's selling presets nowadays. Do you sell your presets too? I don't. So like I've had people ask me for the past like year and a half to sell my presets. But like, honestly, I like, because I know that presets are all over the place in the realm of like how you edit your photo. I don't know. It just doesn't feel right to sell somebody preset if they're not able to achieve exactly what they want from seeing from my photo. Because I know myself, when I apply one of my presets I previously made to another one, it does not look good right away. And I spend like five, 10 minutes like tinkering Adjusting. around the settings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, making sure that it looks perfect. And I don't know, in my head, if I bought someone's preset and it just didn't work for me, I'd, like, I'd be pissed. Like, why did I spend $50 on 10 presets that just like don't work? I wanted it to work. So I've actually held back from selling my presets. I got this close to releasing one of them um, last year. I had this preset that made everything look like really dreamy and like very more like pink and like a lot of oranges. And I had like really high highlights for like the yellows and the oranges. Um, and a lot of people wanted it. But then unfortunately, when I switched from my laptop to my computer, I actually lost my whole Lightroom library in the process <gasps> of it. And oh, no. that deleted my whole preset. So I can't even go back and find it anymore. And I don't know how I create it because now I try to recreate it. It just doesn't work anymore. So I can't release that one. But I have my current preset that I've been using for the past, I would guess, like two, three months on my most recent feed photos. So I haven't decided if I want to release that or not yet. But then I also feel like everybody's selling presets. Like, what differentiates mine from somebody else? I know, I know. And nothing against preset selling. I think it's mm -hmm. it's great. And I just think it's people's expectation when they get it and apply it to a photo. Like, well, mine doesn't look like hers. Like, how did she? It's not, not like a, well, they'll get on a call with you and be like, okay, just adjust these few things and it will look very similar. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it's for someone who's never used Lightroom or just expects to get what they see. It's, it's not really like that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I was gonna ask about your um, Instagram aesthetic. So how did you decide on making it so like neutral and like beige and cohesive? Like it all blends so nicely together. Like how did you pick that? Um, okay, so when I first started Instagram, it was like the randomest thing ever. And then once my Instagram started picking up, uh, if you go far enough back to like, I don't know how, I think it's like 2012 maybe or 2014, everything actually was black and white back then. I thought that was like the edgy, cool, like a lot of <laughs> negative space, just like one hand up against the wall showing off like your bracelet stack or like a latte from the top down on a white table. Like I thought that was a cool thing back then and I thought it was a shit for posting that. And then I just got really frustrated with that because it's actually so hard to white balance a photo perfectly so that all your whites match you're always gonna have like a weird yellow or blue tinge in it so I gave up with that sure. and then I started experimenting with color because my whole wardrobe at that point was just black and white 
when you this is your full-time job you end up like your whole lifestyle revolves around it so all I would buy was like black and white clothes because everything matched I never had to worry about it looking in a weird color and I just got really tired of that so I was like screw it I'm gonna buy colorful clothes and then I started going to this colorful rampage for about like two and a half years or so if you go far back enough I think like even Christmas of this past year is still kind of in that theme where like, everything's like super vibrant like a nice soft I don't know how to describe it. People say it was like a romantic, like fairy tale type of preset that I had back then. Um, but then my feedback that I was getting from a lot of people is that they found my content to be very unrelatable and a little bit too fantasy style. Um, so that caused me to kind of like rethink it over again. Like I loved it because I did a lot of travel back then and it really brought out the colors in travel. But at the end of the day, I think I was starting to shift away from travel as much and do a little bit more lifestyle. And like my everyday life is not that vibrant. Like I live in a like a condo that I rent. It has white walls. I can't paint it. Um, most of my furniture is very like monochromatic, except for like my brown leather couch that I have outside. So then I started noticing a lot of like warm tones and like brown and beige just coming into my everyday life. And I started shifting away from buying colorful clothes to buying more kind of like neutrals. Like I integrate like navy and like olive green but a lot of my stuff has like very dusty tones to it and I kind of think that I like that aesthetic so now I just played around with it and changed it to that and it helps by having your decor surround you with that and at the same time having the wardrobe con complement that as well to find that if you're struggling to edit your photos and you're not wearing the right colors that just makes it a nightmare so I would ultimately say the clothes really help <laughs> to create that overall seamless aesthetic and then just to have like your backdrop or your background around you also have like a similar aesthetic okay well. fair enough fair enough yeah. and then to use a cohesive I guess preset on everything yeah for sure I find that I'm seeing a lot of the same kind of looks for a lot of like lifestyle Instagram girls but I really like yours like yours is you. it's not the orange like oh it just not that I don't like it's just too much everyone has the same one so it's nice to see something <laughs> else but also like it's clean and polished and like pleasing to look at you know what I mean um so I guess my next question would be how has this pandemic affected you in the space you're in Oh, okay. So at the beginning of the year, I signed a couple of like year long contracts, which would just be recurring um, deliverables every single month. I had to like post like one Instagram photo of the brand every single month. Um, from the brand's perspective, I think the economy definitely took a dive. We're currently in like a slight recession. So they started pulling out all of their budget from, I guess, marketing. Marketing PR is always the first thing to go when it comes to budgets, <sighs> especially influencer marketing, because a lot of these brands at the end of the day are still run by older people who have trust in traditional media. Like they trust TV, they trust magazines, influencer media marketing is very like fluffy to them still. Um, so they pulled the budget from that really quickly. A lot of my campaigns were either canceled or paused. Some of them are still paused, even though the, I would say the economy and the market is like picking up a little bit. Um, I definitely saw way less, pitches and offers and opportunities come through my email than usual and I spoke to a lot of people and a lot of them said that they were not getting as many offers as they as they used to transparently I think I went through almost the entire month of March and a little bit of April without like any source of income whatsoever at all it would just be like trickle and residual checks from like work I did from December or January that the clients had just started mailing them in a lot of clients even said that because their offices were closed, they weren't able to go out and like process checks because accounts teams couldn't go into the office to do it. I'm oh, like, okay, but like I need to get paid. I have bills to pay too. So that was frustrating. And then I think within the past month, 
now that all the cities around the world are slowly reopening and the economy is picking up a little bit more, I think a lot of them are trying to kind of retrieve any momentum that they may have lost from like Q1 or Q2, like spring and like Christmas time um, and pump the money back into summer, hoping that people are going to buy things again. So I have received a lot more campaigns within the past month alone. Like I think literally my next two weeks, I have almost six sponsored posts to like push onto my feed when for the past three months, thank you. <laughs> I've literally had nothing. I think I had like one campaign throughout the entire pandemic that I posted. Whereas like it ultimately also depends on your niche, I think. During the pandemic, I did notice a lot of people that were receiving campaigns were mommy bloggers and food kind of like more consumer friendly lifestyle bloggers, I would say, just because at that time, like the only things people are really buying are like food and home care items. And moms have like the largest majority of purchasing power in the household. For so sure. <laughs> a lot of brands were focusing on that. A lot of people were focusing on food because they want to boost the food economy since that was also taking like a nosedive as well. So I think those channels really thrived. I also saw a lot of like at home fitness accounts, like get a lot of sponsorships and they grew like crazy too. There's this girl in Toronto whose videos I watched it's like Madeline, her IG handle is like Mad Fit or something like that. She actually, I think, like lives in Toronto somewhere. I found her at the beginning of the pandemic. She was at like 1.9 million and now she's already at over 3.5 million on YouTube within the span of three months alone. I was like, that's insane. But if you think about it, all the gyms are closed. So you're going online and looking for free workout tutorials. Yeah, and like and resistance bands to use at home, like little exactly. things and not a whole gym set up. Yeah, like things, basic things that you can do at home. And I'm sure her AdSense is through the roof because when you're watching like a guided workout, you're following the entire video. Entire you're not video. Like, skipping through it. That you keep... watch time. Yeah, the watch time is insane. And like, honestly, I applaud her. Like that is phenomenal. And I think all of like the workout gurus or like fitness instructors probably made a killing during this. Um, but for the rest of us, when it comes to like fashion, that kind of fell to the wayside. Travel obviously just like fell off the map completely because nobody's traveling. So it was a little bit difficult for me since I had branded myself in that kind of space of lifestyle, fashion, travel. And then I started to end up like shifting my content a little bit more. And even though I was still posting my regular content that was backdated from when I took a trip to LA at the beginning of March before we went into like a worldwide shutdown, I would post the photo of myself like looking cute in a cafe, but then I'd also incorporate like a carousel swipe to be like, this is how I actually look right now as I'm posting this, just to show you like the relatability. Like I'm not still traveling and advocating that you guys go out there and do things but like here's a pretty photo but at the same time I'm just like you I'm chilling in bed literally with my hair in a bun well it gives you like some normalcy because like when you see yeah. everyone just posting their new track suit you know that they just <laughs> bought or their new like comfy lounge where like it's it's nice to have some like oh they're at a beach like it's just it's nice to see something yeah. else than being photographed in your own home or just like on the outside wall of your home <laughs> yeah so yeah I think the pandemic really affected me like financially and I was watching a lot of um other podcasts and like YouTube channels where they were like analyzing the creator and influencer market and how our space would shape for the next year. A lot of people forecasted like, is this the fallout of the influencer marketing industry? I'm like, no, like brands are not going to pull away from this. It's already proved to be super successful for them. They're not going to like pull out all their dollars, whether or not it's going to recover to hit what 2020 was projecting originally to be like billions of dollars to be spent in the market. Not necessarily. I think a lot of people are also saying that like you should expect to make anywhere from like 40 to 50% of your projected revenue this year since so much money was already lost halfway through the year. So like I set myself in that mind space to just be like, honestly, be grateful for whatever comes your way this year. Take it as like a learning curve and yeah, just like take it one day at a time because we don't even know where we're going to be three months from now. Right. That's very, very true. 
Um, what was I going to say about the influencer space? Oh, when you said clients, do you refer to them, the like the brands as the clients, like when you're um, creating content for, or do you do freelance on the side as well? Um, I refer to the brands as the clients. The ones that as I'm the clients. Content for. Okay. I don't do a lot of freelance work on this side. I have done some here and there. Um, that would probably be like actually a potential career path I was considering for myself during COVID because, sorry, during the pandemic. <laughs> no during the pandemic, I was actually considering that as a potential career path down the road if influencer marketing somehow did bottom out completely because brands are still going to need content for their social media platforms, for their marketing like collateral as well. So I've had experience producing product shots in the past when I worked in PR. They Some clients actually hired us on as production agencies for them. So I've done that previously in the past and I'm sure I'd be able to do that again. So I've considered that in the case that it's like a backup plan. Did you have any scheduled trips during this time that you had to cancel because of? Yeah, I did. So were they personal it, or brand trips or a little bit of both? A little bit of both. So in early February, actually, I was supposed to go to Vietnam with my husband and some of his family because um, I've actually never been to Asia. And one of his uncles works for like a tourism agency there. So he kind of like hooked us up with some great tickets and they're going to do one of those like tourism trips there to kind of show it off and potentially work with their tourism board to, I guess, promote Vietnam as a destination for Canada. Cool. Unfortunately, when everything kind of like settled in towards like mid-January to early Feb, um, a lot of people are kind of having some reservations about the trip because a lot of his relatives that were going were a little bit older and they're kind of immunocompromised. And because it was supposed to be a family trip, it just didn't feel right for us to go. Our biggest fear too was also just like, if we fly internationally, like halfway around the world, like what happens if all the borders are shut down and we can't come home? Like that's I think really that's everyone's biggest fear. Yeah, so that was really hard. We canceled that quite early on. And then the lockdown hadn't happened just quite yet. And it wasn't officially a pandemic just quite yet. I think like March 11th or March 12th was the official date, something like that. Um, I had a brand trip to Montreal at the end of February. I went to that. It was just like three days long. That was a flight, but we figured like worst comes to worst. If all the airports are shut down, we'll just drive home. It would be seven hours, not the end of the world. We can still do it. So we did that. And then we came back to Toronto, packed up our bags and then went to LA literally the next day afterwards for like seven days. We're like, you know what? Also the US. Canada and U.S. are, like, pretty tight. I don't know what that relationship is going to look like after this. Um, but we were pretty tight back then. We figured if anything happens, we can also rent a car. It's just in L.A. We can drive back. Like, we're still in the same continent. Things are safe. So we did that for about a week. And then literally the day we landed was the same day they announced that the whole world was, like, in a pandemic. And then everything was just, like, shut down immediately. So I'm pretty thankful that we came back the day that we did. Otherwise, I think we would have had a lot more difficulty coming home. Um, I was also supposed to go to the Bahamas in end of March, early April for my bachelorette. So we're, we're legally married, like by paper. Okay. We we're supposed to get married in May. That didn't happen because of the pandemic. And then he was supposed to go to, I think, Punta Cana with his friends for his bachelor party as well. So both of those got canceled. And since then, we've kind of just like left all travel up in the air. Like we've canceled everything that we've scheduled. We're not currently really looking into rebooking any trips in the foreseeable future until at least like a vaccine has been found first and seeing how it's still spreading like wildfire across the world. Like some countries are literally getting the brunt of it right now. I think Brazil is pretty bad at the moment. 
So I just don't feel safe traveling to a destination unless it's been clear for like a minimum of like six months or so. Just like knowing that there's no more surges and now that they're predicting another wave come fall. I know. I know. It's it's like <sighs> things are opening and you're like, I'm confused. Like it's still kind of bad. Like who made this <laughs> in that it was kind of okay to start opening because now like they're like, okay, phase two. Okay, phase three. And it's like, but then when we get to maybe phase three, we're going to have to shut down again. Like this doesn't make any sense. I, it's, I think it's just so hard too because like even if you don't go to phase three, people are going to push the phase three boundaries on their own anyway so it's like we might as well just reopen let things go the way they go and then we'll just face the repercussions when it happens not that I'm advocating it but I feel like that seems to be the general sentiment in Toronto at least like I don't know if you've experienced the same thing in Mississauga but I live like right downtown so people just don't care like I could go to a grocery store and we're kind of at that point too my face and grab things I'm like six feet apart please I know it used to be like I don't know about in Toronto but the arrows on the floor for grocery stores and stuff like at first I was like super strict with abiding that because I got yelled at by a lady in store for going the wrong direction with the arrows I was like I I'm sorry it's my first time in the grocery (laughs) store since the arrows have been implemented yeah but like now everyone's walking in whatever direction they want same thing reaching they don't like give you six feet and go oh can I like grab they just they'll just go grab it and it's like okay so can we kind of act normal like I'm confused like am I gonna get mask shamed for not wearing my mask say but then not then like I don't know it's it's so up in the air with everything that at this point I'm just like it doesn't hurt to be a little extra cautious I'm like really what does it hurt you to wear a mask like for five minutes in a grocery store while you're buying things or maybe like half an hour depending on how long you're in there I'm like does it really impact your life where your life is deteriorating and then I don't know. There's other situations where it's like, I, I want to hang out with my friends, but like, is it okay to hang out with this many friends? Yeah. Have they hung out with other people? Or yeah. like, if I hang out with other people, is it still okay for me to hang out with them? So I'm like, I just want to stay at home and just do nothing. Like, I'm perfectly content to staying here and knowing that I'm going to be okay. You guys can go do your thing. <laughs> so. Yeah, I know. And then they're opening up to like groups of five, groups of 10. And it's like, <sighs> oh my God, I don't, I don't understand these rules anymore, but whatever. For me, as long as they don't open up the border again, I think we're okay. <laughs> But have you heard the stories about Vancouver for there's like a loophole? Wait, maybe. Just go on. So go apparently, on. apparently um, wait staff in Banff have been reporting that there's been Americans like summering there because apparently if you get to the border and if you tell them you're driving to Alaska, CBSA just lets you drive through, but they're not driving to Alaska. They just want to go to Banff. So there's been people from like LA, from like Seattle and like Washington, like literally entering Canada. We're like, this is a problem. Like, there's, do you look at your numbers and say, maybe I shouldn't be leaving my home? I know. There's um an influencer I follow. Well, a couple. One's Jeff Nippert and one's Stephanie Buttermore. They're both in the uh, fitness influencer space. And she lives in Jacksonville, Florida, and he lives somewhere in Vancouver. And he just posted on a story last night that he called, like, the airport. And I don't know what words they exchanged. He never said on a story, but he's like, I'm going to visit Stephanie now. And she was, she lives in the U S and then today they took a picture together being in the U S I'm like, how did you get over there? Like, so when you said that Vancouver thing, there must be like, I don't know what this loophole is, but my dad was saying something like if you have family in the yeah. States or some type of leeway. So her mom is really sick. Maybe he said something along the lines of, Oh, she, my girlfriend's mom's very sick or like, I don't know yeah. to what extent, but I was just like in shock. I'm like, I have no one's traveling and this guy's going <laughs> to the U S right now. I think, like, you're allowed to go through the border, from my understanding, if it's for, like, work purposes, so you have to have, like, a work visa to some extent, or you have to declare that you're going there, or, like you said, family, or medical, or school. Those are, like, the allowances, I believe, but they, these are just, like, people who are just, like, driving casually past the border to go vacation. I'm like, what? 
Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make much sense, man. I don't really know. Uh, let's get a little bit into you and your significant other, because I know that you mentioned a little bit about the situation. So when, how'd you guys meet and what's the process now looking like with this marriage? Since okay. you can't have the wedding anytime soon. <laughs> so I'll start from the beginning. We met about, I would say nine years ago. Actually, no, we met before nine years ago, probably like 12, 13 years ago. Um, we were both seeing other people at the time. We just kind of like kept in contact as friends. And over time, we just ended up getting closer and closer. And then when both of us ended up separating with our partners, then we ended up just kind of hanging out and becoming best friends. And we took it really casually. There was no kind of expectations as to where it would go. We were just like, let's just hang out and see what happens. And we ended up eventually dating for a long term. And now we're getting married. So yeah, we've been together for about nine years now. He proposed about three, three years ago. No, two and a half years ago. We were supposed to get married this year. And at the time when we first picked the date, I was like, you know, two and a half years seems like a really long time, but that should be more than enough time to plan everything. And then when the pandemic hit, I was like, okay, like what happens to the wedding now? Looking back, I think we were really lucky to be one of like the first group of people to have to determine if the wedding was going to happen or not because a lot of the venues across the city were talking to their I guess their clients and like their couples on like a rolling basis since we had no idea like when the city was going to reopen up when you could travel again what the restrictions were going to look like so within roughly I think about two weeks of um, the pandemic label being attached to the virus on like Toronto or at least in Canada we were able to get in contact with our venue and to sort things out and as of now, we've just rebooked everything for next year in May instead, because at that point, we didn't know, like, is this going to last a month? Is it going to last like three months, six months? I don't want to have a wedding in October. Like, we had more or less planned everything for a spring wedding because I wanted peonies. They only bloom in May, June. <laughs> All of my bridesmaids have, like, sleeveless dresses. I'm not making them trek through snow in the wintertime. And we also want an outdoor ceremony. So that was also, like, a huge discussion point, like, a point of contention for us and with a lot of our friends, because we have some friends who are also getting married this year. And we also have friends who have like never attended a wedding are not getting married. So you have such like a varying pers- like spectrum of understanding. Some people are like, don't, why don't you just reschedule our fall? Like, it's so easy. Pick a new day. I'm like, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. We have family members who are traveling in from out of the city. Like, There's I have certain- to worry about. so many things to consider. So at this point, we're just like, screw it. We're just going to like reschedule for next year. So yeah. everything's kind of just been like pushed off. Um, until May next year. We actually signed our papers legally in January earlier this year, okay. not pre-planning for this, purely just because we didn't want to pay for an officiant or a wedding. I just didn't feel inclined to hire a random stranger to show up at my wedding to marry us, so we just did it at City Hall back then and with our family instead. Okay, okay, yeah. My best friend's sister was supposed to get married this past summer, and then they, were, they pushed it originally to this October, and then they were all like, you know what, like, even if things start to go semi back to normal, like, are people going to be in the financial position to like, you know, some people may have lost jobs or have yeah. cuts or whatever. So to be like, oh, like to like, you know, bridesmaids, you have to get the dress and the, I like, I don't know what's paid for and what's not, but mm-hmm. it's maybe not the financial, the best financial situation for across the board. So they're going to do yeah. it next year as well the same kind of situation as you they're just gonna wait another and it was warm too when they want to plan it's like we don't want to do it in october now like what the heck and like there's so many people who even if you can like safely have the wedding now i think they increased it to like 50 people for the ceremony but you can only have 10 people at the reception right now which is like what are you gonna do like that's like two tables it's literally yourself your partner your parents if you both have both of your parents that's already what is that like six people that you can only have four (laughs) friends like it makes no sense to me and then even if they open it up to like 50 people you still can't guarantee that everybody you originally invited 
will want to show up because I've heard of stories where people tell them like hey like I just don't feel comfortable getting together in like large groups or settings right now just because it's not safe for me to so even if the prophet says it's safe like I am not coming to your wedding and you as a couple have already paid for all those seats like you don't get your money back right so like in my head the biggest thing for us was how is our wedding going to look if we have it this year and the way that it will look is that what I had originally envisioned for my wedding and if that's not what I had envisioned like does it even make sense having it this year when we can just like push next year luckily for us the wedding is more of just like a big party for us where I know for some people it's really really important and some people like doesn't matter I'll just like cut it down to like five people and still get married that's the only thing I want so the party's not important to us um but for us like we just want to have like a big gathering of friends just to kind of yeah, like celebrate it's a lifetime with. memory so like I get it if you'd want to yeah. wait and be like I wanted how I wanted it like <laughs> Yeah, so it, that was, like, a huge, huge decision for us to make. And I think I'm not exaggerating. I think I probably say, like, I cry, like, almost every day for, like, two weeks straight. I would, too. Like, I would, too. Because you have it built up in your head, right, for, like, years and years. And, like, I would say for most people, like, you dream about what your wedding looks like maybe as a teenager growing up. And as soon as you know you have a lifetime partner, you're, like, already thinking exactly how it's going to go down. So to have it, like, literally pulled out underneath you like a rug feels there's like a sense of loss and like you're grieving a special moment there. Like, I know that's a weird comparison, but that's how it kind of felt like you had something taken away from you without your control. So yeah, it's the same with other, maybe not to this, quite the same extent, but graduation ceremonies yes. for college university kids. Like I've been and every post I see on LinkedIn the past couple of weeks, I was supposed to walk on the stage today and receive my diploma. Oh. I'm like, Oh my God, that's, that must be, that is hard. Like as much as I made a fit when my parents are like, Hey, we're going to your ceremony. I'm like, Oh my God, we're going to be there for like three hours. I'm going to have to like get my paper. Like I just want the photo and that's it. And like, now I'm like, wow, I was so ungrateful with that thinking because <laughs> that could have been me this year. Like if I decided to stay another year do a postgrad, et cetera. So like, cause I just graduated a year ago. Um, so I was like, wow, I missed it by like <laughs> a You're year. Lucky. Yeah. But yeah, I totally get that. Uh, you are like grieving for that, like loss or some, some universities canceled them. Some of them have postponed it. So you have to graduate with the next graduating class. It's yeah. not the same. So it's not. And like you build up these moments in your head because like society conditions us to expect these like life milestones to be like so amazing. And like, yeah, they are actually amazing. And you want to be able to experience them and to feel that you've been robbed of that experience just makes you feel that like, like your life has been affected in such a traumatic way. Like I also have a, a cousin who graduated this year from high school, was supposed to start university this year. So like she lost her prom, she lost her graduation, her convocation. And now I think they're also supposed to be starting school online. And in my head, I'm like, oh my God. Like when I started university, the most exciting thing for me was like frosh. Being able to meet all those people. And I think one of the most important things about university or like college is meeting people and making those connections. And to like not have that is a very different experience from just like e-learning. Like literally anybody can e-learn online. But like how often do you get a chance to meet like a thousand people every single year that are different that you can connect with and like either create friendships out of it like potential career relationships in the future or even find like your soulmate there so I just felt so bad for her that she wasn't able to have those opportunities all within like this one year alone yeah for sure I couldn't imagine not having like an O week like an orientation week and oh. I mean my sister was saying that she heard that the uh first years for next year they're just gonna move their like O week to the first week of second semester but like in Canada like here that's really cold like you got like a meter of snow on the ground yeah it's not the same like I get it's something better than nothing but that's just sad did you and your um husband meet at school or where did you guys meet we actually met through friends so Ottawa in itself I for us at least it was like a very small circle of people we 
lived in like this we all both lived in the west end of the city so we had a lot of like very similar friends um and we met through our friends from like back then i'd say in high school we're like partying a lot at nighttime and like university as well so we met through friends but we didn't actually even go to the same universities together we went i went to ottawa he went to carlton so we're like rival universities um but yeah, it was just through mutual friends. We kind of like to stay in touch because he literally lived like a 10 minute drive away from my house. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, is he also a content creator? Because I saw his Instagram page and his is really nice too. I'll pass that along to him. Um, <laughs> he is now. He started doing it like a couple of years after I get, got heavily into it just because he ended up coming with me on like trips. And then when I was like shooting stuff, I just like pushed him like, hey, like we're already here. This is like a beautiful space. Why don't you just shoot something too? And he started posting it. Um, and now he has his own like basketball podcast because he's like a super, I don't know what the right term or phrase would be like, he's a basketball fan. So he just does that on his own. And then he has his own like basketball blog, but he still does like a lot of lifestyle content on his own as well. Um, we actually, whenever we work on brands, we try to bring each other together into our campaigns, um, just to kind of be able to diversify a brand's reach, just because I find that, especially in this day and age, brands are not necessarily gender specific anymore. Like even with like skincare and beauty, like men use it too so it's just as applicable to be able to advertise or to like to market with them as well and if sure. you're not marketing with them another brand is so you're losing out on that like 50 percent of that diversity you could be accessing in the audience space so i do bring him in a lot of my campaigns um i found that my audience seems to like really enjoy him in my content as well so we just ended up bringing him onto my stuff and then because of that he shoots a lot of similar content for his as well like when we shoot for mine we shoot for him and then out of that he kind of discovered his niche of like what he likes to shoot he enjoys a lot more product shots I would say he's a huge sneaker head so he loves to shoot his shoes and collect mm -hmm. them so that's kind of like his thing right now but yeah he does do a lot of his own stuff now too okay so sorry that is his full-time or his side uh I would say like it's it is his full-time but he also like has another job as well that also operates as a full-time I would say for him it's not sustainable to be a solo full-time income just quite yet Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And are you on any of his podcast episodes? I'm not. I'm not the most, I guess I would say, well-versed in basketball. I have picked up a few things here and there over the years of being together with him. Like I watched things. We went to one of the finals games for um, the championship last year together. But Sweet. besides that, like I don't, yeah, I don't uh, end up showing up on any of his podcasts. Um, it's, I just let him have his own thing. Cause I, I know he's so absorbed with like a lot of stuff that I do already that I, I want him to be able to have his own, I guess, platform that doesn't revolve around me so that he can have it for his own like self. That makes sense. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, did you want to share some of your, um, interesting travel stories? Like, do you have any that like stick <sighs> out to memory? Oh my God. I have some crazy ones. I definitely would say. So last year I got to, um, go to Tahiti for the first time ever on mm -hmm. a brand trip with the Tahiti Tourism Board. And it's safe to say it's definitely one of those destinations that 100% serves as like a honeymoon destination. It's by no means cheap or affordable whatsoever at all. So you're going there once you've saved up enough for it. Um, but we just started flying our drone within the past two years or so because we purchased one. And I decided, hey, I'm just going to bring Tahiti with me. I've never flown it before by myself. It's always been my hus husband who's been flying it whenever we've been going on trips. But I figured I might as well try. It's like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go there and to get, like, drone footage, so why not? So I flew it there, and we're on one of those, like, floating huts that's, like, above the water. So you're literally surrounded by ocean. Like, there's no land around you. Uh -huh. 
and when you're by the water, you know, like it gets like a lot windier and it's like the, the air currents are like a lot stronger. Uh-huh. So I flew it up and I guess it was about to storm. So this gust of wind starts like blowing it out towards sea. I'm like, oh shit, this is like a $2,000 piece of equipment that I'm going to literally lose at sea and I can't even swim out to recover. Like this is going to sink to the bottom of the ocean and it's gone forever. So I immediately put it in reverse and like flung it back in towards like the hut where we were staying. But in the process of it, I guess the erratic motion of like swinging in the opposite direction kind of like threw off its balance a little bit and it ended up crashing into one of those outdoor shower heads that was on the the, the wooden space of the hut and that actually almost reflung it back into the ocean at the same time so then I'm sitting there like trying to fiddle around like making sure it lands safely and it literally lands like with I think like three or four inches on of the like the wooden um like platform before it falls into the water and in the process I'm like freaking out running over and I like knock over this ginormous like two meter tall plant pot like not even oh like plastic one, like, and it like, falls on my foot and literally my foot like the top of it just like bubbled up into this like ginormous thing and I'm like honestly right now I don't even care about the pain I would have been so pissed but I like saved this two thousand dollar piece of equipment <laughs> so I'm very happy with that so that's kind of like one of my travel horror stories that like <laughs> You as a normal person would not experience if you're not traveling and trying to create content at the same time. Like, people would just be chilling on the terrace or, like, the rooftop by the pool next to the ocean, just, like, relaxing. But here I am freaking out, causing bodily harm and wasting almost $2,000 for equipment just because I wanted to get a nice drone aerial shot. Was your husband with you? No, he didn't come with me. He stayed here just because the brand um, wasn't able to compensate right, his, um, right. him as being an additional trip with me. Drone stories. Do you have your drone license? Is that because I know that's a thing now you apparently have to have. So I I don't. <laughs> he does though, which is why he usually ends up flying it. I think back then when I flew it, it was like 2019 at the beginning of January. I don't think that they were as strict then with the drone licenses. I can't remember. Or it's either that or Tahiti just didn't have any sort of requirements since I think droning back then was like still very new and a lot of countries didn't exactly have regulations implemented just quite yet so yeah I kind of took a gamble there I don't advise anybody doing that because you can definitely get your drone confiscated I've heard stories of people having their drones like shot down by like authoritative figures like they literally will take a gun and shoot it down if you're flying in places you're not supposed to um, another drone story we when we first bought it we went to London with it like London England and then at the same time we were also oh no sorry Portugal and on that trip we were also t- spending a week in Morocco Morocco doesn't allow drones at all like you can't even enter the country with a drone so we were freaking out like we have a drone with us like what are we gonna do are we gonna get like arrested uh, is the drone gonna get like confiscated like what's gonna happen here like what do we do with this $2,000 piece of equipment? Like, I It's not cheap. It's not like you can be like, okay, we'll just buy another one. Like, no, and I literally just bought it two months before that trip. <gasps> so I was like, I haven't even used this thing yet. And I literally just like burned $2,000 at this point. So we were freaking out. We luckily did some research. It was very new, but they had just installed lockers in the airport in Morocco for you to like, I guess, lock your belongings there if you wanted to. But then on Reddit, like, I was reading some forums where people were being super sketchy saying like they locked their stuff there and when they came back it was gone and the officials claimed that they didn't do anything with it it must have just been lost and they couldn't claim it so I was just freaking out at this point I was like what kind of lock is it that they lock it 
It's just the the officials take it into a room behind them. Like you don't even get to see them. They lock it okay, away. That's not cool. You don't even like get no. peace of mind of where it's going. No, like you have no idea. But at that point, I was like, I'm freaking out. Either I get a two thousand dollar piece of equipment confiscated, or I potentially lock it and trust that I get it released back to me when I come back to the airport to pick it up. So I was panicking the entire trip. We luckily were able to get it locked up it was like a nice hour and a half long process of like sitting in an office getting grilled by like 100 questions of them asking us like what we were doing with the drone why did we enter the country with the drone if we knew we weren't allowed to how long were we gonna leave the drone there you have to pay like a rental fee for the locker and if you go over x amount of days you have to pay like a little bit more figure all that stuff out and then they're like okay when you come back bring your form to here to here to here and do this and i'm like but I have a layover of like literally an hour and a half. Like, how am I supposed to get all this done when your interview with me took an hour and a half this time? And it was like, don't worry, we'll get it fixed up. So, all right. <laughs> you don't understand my level of panic when we came back to the airport a week later to claim our drone. I'm like, this is this is it. Either I get my drone or like it's lost. One of the two. Luckily, we got it back. But it was like probably one of the most like not harrowing experiences, but most anxiety-inducing experiences besides the trip to Tahiti. Yeah, <laughs> to for sure. When did you find out? that they were illegal in Morocco, like on your flight? Like when did it cross your mind? Uh, when we were in Portugal. Oh. <laughs> so we were very <laughs> new to, yeah. So like we were very new to owning the drone back then. Like we literally only had it for two months. Here and us. then, uh, this was like 2018, I think. Okay. Like, beginning of 2018 or 2017. Yeah, it's pretty recent. But back then that's when all, the, I think the regulations were being put in place for like within even like North America. Like you can't fly in like city spaces. You can't fly over buildings that are five stories higher. You can't fly it over animals or like human. You can't fly it over like farmland. You can't fly it in public parks. Like that's literally the regulations in Canada. I'm like, you literally make it physically impossible to fly the drone here. But in order to fly a drone properly, you need to practice. Like it's a skill you have to pick up and perfect. It's not just like, bring it up in the air and go like there's a lot of things you have to understand when it comes to flying a drone so we took every opportunity we could out of the country to be able to fly yeah, it for sure portugal didn't have any crazy restrictions i think a lot of the european and the middle eastern countries weren't as strict with flying drones as north america was just quite yes so we took advantage of that and then we got to portugal we didn't have any issues with it and then we looked into like what the legalities were flying the drone downtown in like the busy areas and then we figured you know what at the same time like let's look into morocco and see what it would be like there and then we found out that it was illegal to just even possess a drone in that country and we're like okay well then what do we do now so it was like a full-on like panic of three days where we didn't really get to enjoy our time in Portugal. We're just like researching and reading like forums for hours every day, trying to figure out exactly how to save our drone. Stress levels were high. Yeah, like an option was like, do we just pack it up and ship it back home? Do we insure it? Because like, what if it gets lost in the mail or damaged? Do we just bring it to Morocco and like risk like locking up there and like hoping that we get it back afterwards? Or do we risk bringing it to the country and like lie about having it and getting in trouble and being banned from flying ever again? Whole bunch of things. How many people? have been in the same situation as you arrive to Morocco because they're from like traveling from country to country and be like oh my god like I wonder how many of these security guards have to go oh my god not again honestly I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people fell into that situation I think now because we have traveled so much with it like it's part of our routine like before we go on a trip anywhere to like check all the legalities behind it just to make sure it's even viable for us to bring it we've gone on trips where we don't even bother bringing it with us um like I know Florida is super strict with drones as well like we wanted to fly really? around yeah, because they have, like, all those, like, homeowners associations where you can't fly it over, like, neighborhoods and stuff. And, like, they have all this land. I think Disney literally owns air rights where you can't fly over Disney World, like, whatsoever at all or within, like, 
a certain radius of the airport. So we decided, like, screw it. We're not going to bring our drone there. Yeah, I can't say I've seen any vlogs with drone footage from Disney. So that <laughs> that's probably one of the first big flags. Yeah. So now it's it's just part of habit for us whenever we book a flight somewhere. We also look up, like, what are the drone laws in that certain country, in the specific city, um, to make sure if it's even, like, if it makes sense for us to bring it with us anyways. Right, right. Oh, my Lord. Well, what would you say is your most favorite place you visited you probably have a few but like very memorable best experience type things so our most memorable trip together we both agree on is actually our very first time in Portugal this would be about like three or four years ago I think probably in like 2017 um I think that was the year when Portugal actually like started pumping a lot of money into marketing for their tourism board and it just like it boomed it popped off but we went before that happened and I found that this the country itself was it was beautiful like I love the weather I love the food I love the people there but it seemed very untouched still by like mass tourism um like if you go to like Tokyo or like New York or Paris or like London you you've seen what it's like to have like tour buses everywhere hordes of people there it just doesn't seem genuine or organic anymore and at the time Portugal just seemed so perfect like you'd go into villages and there'd be like grandma is just like cooking and serving food at like their doorways and you can buy like snacks for like less than a euro and just like walk down the road ubers for like three to four dollars max um like canadian you could literally get across like the city in that and people were just so nice relaxed and we absolutely loved it to the point where like we went back last year with two of our friends um and i think even within that two-year time span alone it has changed so much already like you have hecklers on like the beach trying to like sell you like seashells or like blankets like you see when you go to like Hawaii or like Mexico um when you're on the road there's a lot more people trying to like pickpocket you even though it's a very safe country still like I just feel like tourism definitely has changed the face of that country a little bit more and even though I enjoyed my experience there I think it took a little bit of the magic away from the country that I had when I first visited although I still think to this day, Portugal is like one of my favorite places to go to. And I would definitely go back to it like over and over and over again. Where in Portugal did you visit? We went, the first time we went to Lisbon and Porto. And then the second time we went back this time, we did like the whole Algarve coast. Um, and then we went back to Lisbon as well. I would love to go back and go like further deep into like inland where like some of the smaller vi villages are to kind of like explore those places and to go along the more like the coastline on the east, the west side as well. Gotcha. Because I went to Portugal as well about a year ago. And well, we my boyfriend and I did like a, a Euro trip. So we did England, nice. um, France, uh, okay. Italy and Portugal. Portugal, I would have to agree with you. It was probably my favorite this far just because of that reason. Like it, it felt the least touristy yes. and it just felt like so like genuine and true and like and the Ubers, yeah, they were so cheap. I remember yeah. we, we got to Airbnb, the host was saying like, yeah, sometimes on hot days, like when we don't want to climb the whole hill, we'll just pitch for an Uber because <laughs> it's like cheap anyway. So we're like, yeah. <laughs> that's Here crazy. you're like $20 minimum to get anywhere in the Yeah, city. and you're like, uh, I'm wearing heels, but like the bar isn't that far from the <laughs> Okay, we'll walk it, we'll walk it. Like, it's just, that's so crazy. Yeah, I visited Lisbon and Lagos, but I really wanted to visit Porto. Porto seemed like really nice. Porto was really, really nice. I think... Okay, for me, when we went, it rained almost like the entire week we were there. So I think that kind of like clouded my judgment of the place. It reminded me a little bit too much of Vancouver. I'm not the biggest rain person, so I didn't like it. But my friends this year, after they actually stayed a little bit longer than we did because um, my friend's boyfriend's family actually is Portuguese. So he went to visit some family there as well. So they got the chance to go to Porto. But the entire time that they were there, it was sunny. So they got an amazing time. 
Um, so I would love to go back and like try Porto again just to see if I would like it a little bit more. But I think thus far, like Lisbon's like my favorite city there. Yeah, so nice. I'd go back too because when we went, our um, one of the main reasons why we wanted to go was there was the I think it was called the Benjal or Bengal Cave, and you would do paddleboarding oh, yes. through it. Did you do and it? The- no, because the waves were so high. Okay, so we were in, where was it? In Italy. And my boyfriend's like, I have to tell you something. I was like, what? And he's like, okay, like I got this email a couple of days ago, but I didn't want you to start crying. And he's like, um, all of our water activities are canceled in Portugal oh, no. because the waves are too high. And we're, we were only like planned the trip because we did so much in that like two and a half weeks we'd planned to go to Europe. We only planned like three days in Portugal. So we're like, if the waves don't clear any of the days, like, well, that's it. Like we're, we're going, but we're not doing anything other than just like walking around sightseeing, but none of the freaking, and you couldn't even take out a kayak or anything like they would not rent it to you because the waves were that bad so it was almost like why would you even let people swim in the waves then but oh, i'm not i'm not gonna ask questions but i remember being so sad because that's like the only reason why i want to go i saw it through another blogger uh, i don't know if you follow her allison anderson and she's yeah. a huge travel bug um and she has a blog and she had these beautiful beautiful photos of like doing paddle boarding and i was like okay we like put that and it didn't happen so yeah. Yeah. You actually reminded me of another traumatic story I have because we actually ended up going there when we were in the Algars as well. And, okay, I'm not going to lie, that was a very traumatic experience. So we ended up um, kayaking out to there. And as we were kayaking, there were literally people, like, swimming along, like, the edges, like, the rocks to get there because you can do that, like you said. You, so I think the options are you can swim or you can kayak or canoe or you can take, like, a boat um, that will take you on like, I think like a circuit of like 15 different caves. That was the only cave we wanted to go to. Cause the other caves were just like, okay, they're just caves. Cause I just want to see like that eye in the top of the cave yeah. and see like the light come down. So we're like, Hey, why don't we just rent the kayaks and go there so we can spend as long as we want. Well, not as long as we want, as long as like the rental permitted, but not have to like rush in quick with like 15 to like 20 other people fight for a photo and then leave if we don't even get the nice photo and like go to another cave we don't care about. So we did that, but like you said, the waves were really strong. It took us, I kid you not, probably like 15 minutes just to get our kayak into the water. Oh. And at the same time, this woman that was kayaking back, like she was struggling. So she tried to help us. But then the process of like helping us push our kayak out, like she got soaking wet. She's like, I can't help you. Like, I'm sorry. Like, this is too deep. And like the water, the sand just like drops at some point. So it's like uh, like a sandbar and it just goes straight down to the ocean. You're like, uh, okay. Safe. Yeah, very safe. And, like, the, these waves are, like, two meters high above you. So, like, during the process of us literally kayaking, it's, like, a five-minute kayak. Like, I kid you not, you could walk down the road to, like, another block in your neighborhood and you'd be at the case. That's how insane it is. But the entire time you think you're going to die. Like, I'm not even joking. The waves are, like, extra, like ridiculously high. You're kayaking, fighting against it. You're looking at the rocks to your side, which literally look like they could cut diamonds so your fear is that like if the wave smashes you onto the rocks you're gonna die and then once we got to the cave I don't know what like I'm not the best in physics when it comes to waves but like the waves crashing into the sand inside of the caves and then the sand coming back out like literally like your kayak goes in and as you're trying to get out it lures your kayak back out and then you have to get out of your kayak to drag it in but it's also like another sandbar that like goes a little bit and it just drops so as you're trying to like pull it and the wave pulls you out you then get like sucks you underneath your kayak because you fall and you lose your footing so you're like literally drowning as you're trying to also beat your kayak at the same time it was so bad that my husband actually ended up getting like a really bad gash on his foot because all those rocks are in the sand as well yeah it's hard not to like no it's so hard and then one of our cameras actually got water damage because the waves kept like literally going over us if i can find you the video afterwards i'll send it to you my friends took a video of us 
or did they no we didn't it was my friend she had her phone um like it was like a waterproof one like one of the newer iphones and she took a video of us as we were trying to like beach ourselves inside the cave and all you just see is this massive wave go boom and like completely cover us and i'm like that that was a moment right there when my camera died that's exactly it oh so we got our photos but I would definitely say it probably was best that it was canceled for your sake because I feared for my life the entire time. And the the kid, that's not even like the catalyst of this story. I went back afterwards. We got lunch at this like little restaurant nearby, like a five minute walk away. And I was like doing some research about the caves itself. And I read that up until that point last year, I think we went like September-ish, 19 deaths had been reported from people trying to get to the caves. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't read this before I went there because I definitely would not have gone. <laughs> Just oh from people being like God. pulled under the to- like the current or like smashing into the rocks or like drowning. I'm like, wow, like what the heck? And you're almost in the tricky situation where you're like, you're not only having to worry about yourself, but the kayak as well. And then yes. it's like, it's just a whole nother ball game trying to do it with the kayak. So, oh, it also holy. didn't help. My husband doesn't swim either. So <laughs> the entire- life jackets? we were wearing life jackets, okay. but I was just more like, if we flip, we're screwed. Like, I fully trust myself to be able to swim back to shore. But I'm also, like, really light and tiny. And I know the ocean currents are crazy. So my Strong. first view was, can I even, like, fight against the ocean current to get myself back to shore? Secondary, like, obviously, I'm going to ditch equipment. Like, screw it. It's, like, life over, like, equipment. I can rebuy equipment in the future. But then it's, like, how do I drag my fiancé with me back? He's, like, my body weight plus some. <laughs> so I'm fighting for, like, two people. So I'm, like we better make it alive or else literally going to be ending up in the news the next morning as like one of those like influencers who traveled somewhere and died in the process of getting the perfect oh photo. I'm like, God. I cannot be that headline. <laughs> That's wild. The, the only difference is because you guys just went you two, right? Like you weren't with a tour group. No, we went by ourselves because we just rented the kayaks. So I'm like, the, okay. Like the beach there. Okay. Yeah. Cause we were supposed to go with like a, a guide, like he was supposed to like bring us, okay. but I, again, I don't know how much help they really would have been other than giving tips of like how to survive it. But like, yeah, <laughs> holy, holy. Yeah. No. So honestly, I think you dodged a bullet. Don't worry. Oh <laughs> you my can God. always go back. At least yeah, that's true. I can always go back <laughs> with the hecklers now. Yeah. And I guess what is your uh, least favorite travel experience or one that you're not, you, you would maybe be like, ah, it was nice, but I wouldn't go back. Um, I don't have any places where I would say I wouldn't go back, but I would say up until this point, my least travel experience, I've kind of like had some time to rethink on it. This has been like, I think two and a half years since I went there, but our trip when we did London and Morocco at the same time, I think Morocco itself was such a huge culture shock for me. I had never experienced something like that. Like I grew up in North America and like, this is all I know. And over there, it's a completely different lifestyle. They have a completely different religion. And I think there's like a lot larger disparity of wealth there. Like you can walk down the road. We stayed in the Medina the entire time, like in the tight Denton court, this like hundreds of years old you can walk down the road and like peep into like a doorway of like a house made of like clay and wooden sticks and literally see people lying on straw mats on like a dirt floor and then across the street is a five-star luxury hotel that is like owned by expats from like the U.S. or Canada that have just like moved there used their wealth to build like a luxurious hotel for travelers to go to and I think that really shocked me seeing the disparity in wealth there um also the fact that we went during Eid 
in, I think it was like April. And for them, there's an eat that I didn't even, like, I was never aware of where they have to, like, slaughter sheep and goats. And they just literally do that on the streets, like, on a sidewalk outside. It's completely normal for them. But for me to see, like, an animal being slaughtered on the side of the road, come, it very much shocked me because I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to process that sort of graphic visual in front of me. So I think that kind of hit me a little bit different. Um, and then also just like, there wasn't a huge language barrier, but their primary language, I, I don't know exactly what it is. I feel really bad now, but they also speak French fluently. I know French just because I grew up in Ottawa. It's a very bilingual city. So I learned enough to be able to get by. Um, but for my fiance who doesn't know French really at all, I had to essentially translate for him the entire time. They have people who work in like hotels and stuff who are trained to understand English so they can help you by. Mm -hmm. But just having, I guess, like the lack of fluid communication just made it a little bit more difficult. Um, and it's just very intimidating too, because they're very respectful of tourists. Like they have no issues with you whatsoever at all. But I think their culture there is a little bit more leaning towards like male dominating like the household sort of situation i'm sorry like if patriarchal i patriarchal yes it's, heavy. it's still yeah, yeah yeah it's still very patriarchal heavy i think women are expected to like cover up as much as possible um as a tourist they don't regard you any less for like wearing like a tank top although people do advise that when you travel there to like be respectful if you're going to any of like the religious places to, like cover up a little bit more right, or when you're going right. out just wear a little bit more um so that kind of came as a culture shock to me a little bit but i think looking back now it's one of the most mind-opening trips I've ever been on myself um and I very strongly believe that like everybody should travel given their financial circumstances and they're able to because it really helps you to like understand how different people grow up around the world and like what their lifestyle is like and like the bubble that we live in North America is not what the rest of the world exists as and I think it really helps you to put your play your mind into like an empathic place where you can understand people's differences and their opinions and how it differs from yours so even though it wasn't the most enjoyable for me, I actually do want to go back again and approach it with like a more open mind. And there's a bunch of cities that I do want to visit this time I didn't get a chance to go to because their cities are so separated from far away from each other. I think they're like a seven hour drive from one city to another, like just to get from Morocco to um, like you want to go to Casablanca, it's like seven hours and you're driving through the desert. So that's like a whole day of travel there. And to be able to fly back, I think you have to leave for Morocco. So that's another seven hours back. So if you're staying there, I'd recommend like at least 14 days so you can like experience each city a little bit. So I'd love to be able to go back and just to experience that culture again, but with like a more open and understanding mindset so I can kind of really experience it to its best this time and to like travel and visit different cities. But I would say impactful wise, it probably wasn't one of my trips that I enjoyed the most immediately off the bat. Fair enough. It was a, it was a huge culture shock to me, but like I, I really appreciate that experience now. Good. Good. Well, yeah. the last question I usually end the podcast off with is if you're happy with the direction of life you're going on now and the path you've chosen, <laughs> exciting things to come, or are you just like in a content space? Um, I try to always challenge myself to see like what I can do to improve. And I just, I personally for myself, like I'm not, I don't really enjoy complacency because then I feel like I'm not learning anything. So I would say I am content where I am now, but I'm always looking to like improve in different aspects like for youtube i definitely want to learn like better editing techniques and like discover and explore other topics of interest on my channel as well i think for myself it's 
it's hard to say now, given that we're not in a, if we weren't in a pandemic, I think I would have a better sense of headspace as to where I'd be going in the future. Um, my plans now for where I am currently are not what I had in mind at the beginning of the year. I thought it was like 2020, it's going to be your year. You're going to do so well. Cause I had been having a pretty positive upward trajectory, like financially success wise and like hitting milestones of where I wanted to be in the past few years. And then this kind of, I guess like hit a roadblock. So it's hard to say where I see myself now. And I think at the moment specifically because of that, I'm just trying to take every day, like day by day and make the best of it. If things go the way I am, the way they are right now, by the end of the year, I'm hoping to at least match where I was like last year growth wise in terms of like audience reach financial goals, that sort of thing. Um, but it's really hard to say like so long-term in the future when everything is so up in the air right now. I know that's probably not the answer you no, want no, to hear. Honestly, it's, it's a good answer because it's so genuine and it's not like, yeah, for sure. I'm so excited to do all these things when I have no idea what's going to happen yeah. in the next six months to a year or even beyond that. So I appreciate your like honesty and, and like through your response is what I'm trying to say. There's definitely like not a lot of stability in this industry, I would say. And like, it, there's always a new face popping up every day too that like becomes more popular. Like I've seen myself, like I've had like peaks and then I've seen like other waves of girls get like really popular in the space. And then like, I've literally seen them kind of like slowly fade while like another group of girls get popular as well. So that's another thing that I try to keep myself cognizant of as well, that like, you're not always going to be everyone's favorite. Um, it's just not physically possible. So yeah, I just try to take it day by day and then set myself goals and see if I can hit them. Is there anything else you want to add to this episode? Uh, no, I think that was it. We touched on a lot of different things. We did. I yeah. <laughs> Do you want to link your social media accounts for everyone to go search? And I'll definitely link them in the uh, episode summary and notes. Yeah, for sure. So if you guys want to find me on Instagram or Twitter, my handle is the lust list with two T's at the end. You know, people usually forget the last T. Um, and then also on TikTok, it's just my full name, Victoria Huey. And then the blog is also the lustlist.com. YouTube, you do need to search up my full name, Victoria Huey as well, because I made that YouTube account like 10 years ago, back when we were making like the crazy email addresses for MSN. So you're not going to find it with the original name that I give you. So just look up my name, Victoria Huey, to be able to find my channel. <laughs> There. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking out the time out of your day to do so. No worries. Thank you for having me. I had such a fun time chatting with you. This is really invigorating. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you were all able to take something away from Victoria's story. Don't forget to check her out on all her social media platforms. And I will see you guys all in the next episode.